super excited to be releasing this episode. Colin Welch is an explorer who's been putting himself through limit testing adventures since having an intense experience with death. This ranges from travel adventures, such as flying to India on a whim and sailing halfway across the ocean for environmental conservation, to racing ultras and qualifying for the Boston Marathon, working at SpaceX, and exploring plant medicine to heal. In this episode, Colin shares the story of the past 12 years. Along this journey, he shares some exciting details of his adventures and impactful insights on coming to terms with death by reaching a point of non-resistance. I truly enjoyed this episode with Colin. It touched me deeply. He's an awesome guy with a ton of value to share. Enjoy the show. Colin Welch, thank you so much for joining yet another episode of Confidently Anxious. Super happy to have you on. Um, so we're going to cover a range of topics today with your experiences, you know, just ranging from travel and adventure to ultra running to, you know, intense career endeavors to ayahuasca experiences and so on. But I think a good way to kick this off this episode would be just to talk about sort of like the lead up to triggering that path. Um, I guess, I, I don't know how you like look at your life, but I always kind of look at my life as like my adult life starting at a certain point and then it just kind of clicked for me and then I've been like on this path ever since or something. So I don't know if it's similar for you, but yeah, I'd love to just hear from you. What was the lead up to kind of this path of like intense experiences, but also you wanting to understand and associate more, I guess, like philosophical meaning um, to your life? Yeah. Big question. Let's go. <laughs> Have me on. And um, yeah, so I guess, uh, how can I even start? It's, I think it's been really like an organic progression over time. Uh, I could maybe just back it up and say that I grew up in a really uh, tight bubble, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, I was homeschooled for some time. Part of that was because my family um, kind of just wanted to shelter i think a little bit from some of like the public school system we tried private school um my mom was a teacher professionally beforehand so she uh just thought maybe that would be a good path for me and my brother and so i started homeschooling when i was in first grade uh stayed with it till eighth grade uh, my brother was four years older and started college at age 15. so when you're homeschooled you can kind of just move as fast as you want you know you like stick on a tight plan um, but by, by 15, I was, you know, watching him go off to college. I was feeling like kind of alone at that point. and was like, I want to go, you know, do the system. And um, there was definitely like a drive inside of me to explore and uh, to like experience. I've definitely had that since I was a young kid. And uh, that feeling, I think my dad also fostered because he was a traveling musician. He was a professional trumpeter and so traveled around the world and got to take us with him sometimes, which is another reason why we homeschooled for part of our childhood so that we could travel nice. with dad. And so we were doing stuff like, uh, you know, he took me on a cruise boat up the Amazon River into the jungle when I was 10. And that was like a wow. you know, huge formative experience. It's like, what am I doing in the Amazon jungle? I'm 10 years old. This is crazy. You know, everything's amazing. <laughs> and so I think that planted some seeds for just wanting to explore and travel. Uh, and I can remember staring at the world map, you know, all through elementary school, just being like, oh, I want to see it all. Um, but so jumped into high school. My parents wow. let me do it. They kind of were against the idea, but I was like, I really want to do this. Uh, went to public high school. 
got into Georgia Tech in Atlanta. I'm from Atlanta originally, and um, Georgia Tech, I think, was uh, there was like big catalysts during my college experience. So since I was a kid, I don't feel like I've ever had a very clear idea of exactly what I want to do or who I want to be. It's kind of just been like the next step that's presented itself. And a lot of times as a kid growing up, that's just parents kind of being like, oh, we need to make good grades. Why do I need to make good grades? Oh, you got to go to college. Why do I go to college? Oh, you got to get a job. Well, why do I need a job? Well, you got to support yourself. Okay, I can like track with that, you know, up until the point where you're sitting in an office when you're 23 after college and you're like, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I'm not really in my experience right now sitting here for eight hours a day at a computer. Um, so during my college experience, though, I went in undecided because, you know, I didn't have a clear vision at that point. Uh, I transferred into biomedical engineering because, you know, Georgia Tech is a huge engineering school and I was pretty good at science and math. Um, and I was pretty good at school, I think, just because I try to be good. It's like in my DNA somehow to just try really hard. I don't like being bad at things. Um, so regardless of what it is, if I'm like forced into it, I try really hard. Uh, and so, you know, I just trying to like kill myself, make good grades at Georgia Tech. And that was like one of the first times in my life where no matter how hard I tried, it felt like I couldn't be great at it. Uh, I, I would study so hard and I would still get these like pretty terrible, objectively terrible grades, you know, on a hundred point scale. But it's like half the class is also failing. So I'd get a 50 and the teacher would be like, oh, you got an A. And so that's just uh, I think I'm relating that just to say that started a process between like age 18 and 22 of sort of being like, I don't know yet what's happening. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to, you know, find some purpose, find some motivation, mission. Um, and during maybe like my sophomore year of college, I met someone who was an industrial engineer and was working for Delta Airlines in Atlanta, had just gotten back from some business trip or maybe it was a personal trip to Germany. And was like, dude, you just went to Germany? What are you doing in Germany? He's like, oh, you get free flights if you work for the airline. I was like, okay, well, you know, drop everything. I just want to go travel the world. Let's do that. I changed my wow. degree, <laughs> became an industrial engineer uh, without really caring what industrial engineers do. You know, it was just kind of like, <laughs> well, I've taken physics and these other hard science classes, so I might as well keep going in engineering. And uh, I got an internship at Delta and basically took off around the world traveling uh, for the first time in my adult life. That was the first time I, I had ever um, done it myself and been like, oh, I want to go there and I can do it. And then so autonomy started to actually take place when I was like 19 and 20. You know, that was like the first time that I started to break out of a bubble that I was talking about of kind of like do this and then that and so on. And um, the big i would say like the biggest catalyst event um was when i was 21 still at tech still traveling around the world with delta airlines and my best friend at the time miller was his name he passed away on a sunday afternoon in september um he had a brain aneurysm on a sunday afternoon and completely unexpected he was a totally healthy guy um like no warning sign whatsoever just a phone call that's like hey you need to come to the hospital Miller's, you know, had a problem and it's like, well, what's going on? You know, he, okay. He's, uh, he's about to be brain dead and, uh, you need to come say goodbye. You know? And it's like, I just talked to him the other day. Fuck. What do you mean? Um, and so from, 
I think the day was like September 19th, a Sunday. So, you know, I'm just like doing my work and school thing. And uh, Monday morning, basically it all went down over like a 12 hour period. Um, by Monday morning, his parents were having to make a choice to take him off life support because the doctors were saying we did the surgery. We don't think he's going to ever come back, you know. Um, so you can either keep wow. him on life support as sort of like a, um, for lack of better words, like a potato. <laughs> I think it's how they said it. Um, sorry, I laugh a Dang. little bit. It's like coping yeah. to laugh, you know. Um but so they said, you know, say goodbye. I walked in Monday morning with his brother, Dixon, and we both uh, just held his hand. Like, you know, his hand's still warm, but he's not there anymore. And that was like the first yeah. time that I've ever been exposed to um, mortality so vividly. And it's just like a visceral experience um, to look at that and to feel it. And there's like so much energy and emotion happening in that experience that you don't even quite understand it at the time you know it's like you don't know what you're feeling you're kind of confused and then you're angry and you're sad and you're like also ignoring you know we like the week of his death um i think we had the funeral on that saturday following the monday passing at, at the hospital and during that five days um you know there was like a whole lot of busy energy and like uh, people coming together and supporting each other and like, oh, you know, the community's together. We love you. This is a hard time and everything. You're kind of like lifted up. And then all of a sudden you go and you do the funeral. And um, after the funeral, you're just left with this void sort of of sitting with your own thoughts and being like, what just happened to me? Uh, and just to say maybe like the biggest catalyst moment for me was during the eulogy on his um during his funeral, it was at a huge church in Atlanta um, called Church of the Apostles. You drive past it on I-75, and it's just this like mega castle church. Um, and I think maybe there was something like 400, 500 people maybe um, that came out just from other high schools, friends and family, you know, people in the community. And I stood up there. His mom had asked me and his brother to give speeches. And uh, honestly, I kind of like hardly remember that experience. It's sort of like a blackout experience, you know, like you do it, but then you don't even yeah. know. Uh, but I do remember standing up there and in my speech, looking out at all these faces uh, in the crowd and it's like giant laser beams <laughs> on me. You know, I felt like the target, this giant spotlight. And it's like having this, yeah. moment, how did I get here? And I had written this just like really, you know, heartfelt, thoughtful, um, kind of like Christian based, a reflection of his life and his passing and God's plan. And we're all part of this, you know, Christian picture. And that was the bubble that I had been kind of uh, brought up in. You know, I had never questioned that uh, up until that moment. That was the first moment that I ever seriously in myself was like, whoa, I don't know if I totally am on board. And so that, that moment just started like a huge chain of events wow. of questioning wondering and doubting and uh, need to go experience to discover it myself. I can't just, um, I mean, I was always a kid that needed to experience things myself rather than just be told, don't burn your hand on the stove. I would be the kid that yeah. touched the stove. It's like, ow, it really hurts. Okay, I won't do it again. <laughs> yeah, like fail forward. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that experience really, uh, I think, showed me that I had been living my life in the structure that was presented to me and had not ever actually tried 
a lot of ways of being and ways of thinking, um, philosophical outlook, wow. you know, those types of things. And um, I could just wrap that little commentary by saying that was like the moment that has led. I was 21 at that point. I'm 34 now. And the past 13 years, I think, are all deeply related to that uh, moment in college and the context of that time of life. Wow. Mm -hmm. Did did it feel disingenuous when you were giving that speech and tying it to this Christian message at the time? Is that why you kind of had that epiphany in that moment? You were just like, what am I saying or something? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I, at that time, I thought I was doing the best possible speech writing I could do, you know, and I was pulling out all the verses and all the messages. And I, I literally uh, had, you know, some of my Christian friends at the time review it. Everybody was like, wow, this is great. You know, great content, great message. And I uh, thought it was Dang. great. Yeah, thought it was all great. You know, and, and it was just very performative, I would say, you know, because on one hand, wow. uh, interested to like relay an honest message. But on the other hand, it's like, OK, well, let's uh, let's make it look good. You want to, you know put out the picture that needs to be put out, which is inside of this building that has a certain uh, background and expectation in it. And in my head during yeah. each, I started screaming. I like, I couldn't scream on that podium, you know, just like, okay, I feel intense anger. I feel intense confusion. I don't understand what's happening. Um, I don't like these feelings and couldn't say anything. It was just like, yeah, God has a plan. Miller's in heaven. Everything's great. Let's put our hands in the air and praise, you know. Uh, and so, yes, wow. disingenuous is probably what evolved during the course of that speech. Damn. Um, I feel like I can't relate fully because I haven't had to go through a death in my life like that, but I can kind of relate through my wife. She's gone through a lot of death in her life, unfortunately, and she's still like shaken up by it to this day, like, you know, still like crying about it on random nights and stuff. Um, and it's really tough, but yeah, I guess it's interesting at 21, how death could trigger you prioritizing, wanting to understand different types of meanings to life so that you have, I guess, more direction. Mm -hmm. Um, but then also like when something like death happens, I can imagine you feel like a sense of loss, like a overwhelming sense of being lost because it's like, what's the meaning to this? You know, like, how is this teaching us this type of like growth path? And like, why did it have to be done in this type of way? I don't know. I, I can only imagine that's what I'd be asking if someone really close to me died. Yeah. Um, so is that kind of. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, it's, it's inexplainable in rational context immediately. You know, I think that our minds are really good at um, rationalizing over time. And we are able to kind of uh, turn things that seem really hard at the time into some positive learning experience. You know, um, I can look back now at the past 12 years of this kind of exploratory journey and see how all the events have led to now. And I can spin that really positively, you know, and be like, oh, yeah, I see how the hard things have uh, grown me and challenged me and made me who I am. And I like who I am, you know. Um, so it's it's just i think it's interesting the coping mechanisms that that happen in psychology and um one just as part of like the theme i think uh to describe maybe some of my journey in the past 12 years since that event is that i bottled a ton i didn't have like a uh, really healthy outlet i think 
and I, I either refused some support and went into myself, or I also maybe didn't get the right presentation of help or something. Um, but like part of my response at that point was to turn running into a coping outlet. And so I had already been a runner, um, in my early years, I was a soccer player from early childhood. Um, but then in high school, I actually joined the cross country team and, um, got, you know, pretty deep into 5k running. Uh, and then that evolved, uh, a friend asked me to do a half marathon when I was a junior in high school. And that was like a crazy experience, you know, at that age, you're like, you can run 13 miles. I just even know, didn't even know that people did that hardly. <laughs> um, so it just kind of, it evolved a little bit. And by the time I was 21, uh, I had been a runner, was a pretty good runner naturally had done some training and some races and then started using running as like, I just got to get out into the woods by myself because I don't know what to do with all these hard feelings. And I would run until I couldn't run anymore. You know, I would just like run the anger off and try wow. to sweat it out. And, um, there was a, there's a really special spot in Atlanta with a cliff that my friends and I have always gone out to just to kind of sit in nature and you can jump off it. It's really fun. And, uh, so we'd go out there. I had a buddy, Zach, and he would, he was like my therapy. Basically he was, um, he was a friend that could come run with me. We would run, you know, and run so hard and finally just tire ourselves out and sit on the cliff and look at nature. And that was like a big part of my therapy at that time of life. And so I think that also turned into like a theme of physically running continued to evolve through time, uh, which I know is going to be like part of the theme here today, talking about how I eventually got to like ultra running, um, but also like spiritual, emotional running. And some of that I think is healthy and some of it is avoided in a, in a negative way. So when you would run till you can't run anymore, was that sort of a way of running until your guard was completely let down because you ran it all down. And then I don't know, maybe with your friend, would you be more open to be like, I guess, vulnerable and talk about stuff? Yeah. Yeah. There was bonding going on there. There was support through just kind of being present together with another person because neither of us can fix the situation. Uh, so it just, I think part of the, part of the healing in that space was just sharing an experience with another human that could, you know, kind of share the emotion together. And then also we would reflect and we would get analytical and imagine like, why does this happen? You know, what's the deal with God? How do, my, my story with God is sort of evolving at that point and really starting to question like, are these things actually true? You know, like, what is the story that so much of the world has bought into, you know, there's like a few billion Christians on the planet and a few billion like Muslims and Hindus. And it's like, okay, every culture on the planet has this belief story in some higher power. And, um, I guess they're all fairly similar, but also fairly different. You know, they overlap, but they're different. And we've had wars through history talking about, well, my way is the right way. And we evangelize, you know, and, uh, that's, uh, what the great commission in the Bible talks about going out and, um, evangelizing other people to, to God. But then it's like, well, wh what's the deal with the crusades? Like why, <laughs> why did Christians go murder people? And, you yeah. know, there's so many confusing points and I'm sure if anybody's, uh, ever thought about this, it's listening to this, they probably feel similar or, um, just, there's a lot of like unresolved questions to this day. Um, but, I'll just like drop a little seed here that um, getting into my like spiritual kind of, I wouldn't say 
religious necessarily, but like spiritual journey, um, getting towards like plant medicine connection towards that some higher power, which um, maybe we can talk about later. But to say that, yeah, I think I've sensed that maybe every human needs that connection in the human experience to some bigger power. I, I guess I don't know many atheists. Um, I maybe there are happy atheists that are totally content, but it seems like the majority of humans in this experience need that connection. And my connection really started to dwindle into doubt and confusion and anger following uh, Miller's death. And then over some years of like continuing to try it, I would I would take a Bible with me, like a pocket Bible when I traveled. You know, I'd go across the world seeking answers for myself, and um, so I like kept trying but just never felt that connection inside myself, which is the real root problem is that I never actually felt it. You know, I was just told it. And then people were like, this is the deal. Believe it. And lacked that yeah. personal connection until I think I've started to actually rekindle that recently with some other personal exploration. So you think that I guess the religious context that people kind of imposed on you, just the nature of it all kind of deviates from actually having a true connection with your higher power. So then you're not actually like, feeling that and being pulled or or on that path direction it's more just like i don't know i guess just confusing yeah <laughs> motivation was really confusing in that context right because as a kid it felt like i'm trying to make my parents proud i'm trying to fit into social groups that i have been put into without necessarily always choosing those social groups uh i lived in a family where it was kind of uh it was like frowned upon to rebel so if I wanted to exert my mm. own force and be like, hey, I just don't even want to be in this social group, it was met with resistance to the point that I guess I learned to stop resisting and just figure out how to flow with where I am. So I do feel like maybe there was a loss of self, in my early experience wow. that was, um, you know, very performative, like just trying to fit in, just trying to do the right thing and so on. And then finally got that liberty to actually feel like, what do I feel is inwardly internally uh, aligned you know and that's where the next big thing after miller i would say is uh so he passed fall of 2021 and then i went back to school and work during uh so i said 2021 i meant 2010 um is the year he passed and then 2011 i was back in school back in work and by the end of 2011 things in life were just so tumultuous and stressful like work was hard school was challenging relationships were breaking um because of like partly because of me distancing and going inwards and it you know it was like pushing away because of it was like you can't fix anything like i'm just there's anger and it's coming out in the wrong areas towards the wrong people type thing so by the end of 2011 i was like you know what i gotta just get out and <laughs> i gotta i gotta distance and just go be with me and the way that i did nice. that was i bought a get to india uh, in january of 2012 and i took off for six months uh, just to go be by myself. I went without a cell phone. Um, I think I had an iPod touch at the time <laughs> and that was like a little connection. Wow. Um, you know, I'd go in a coffee shop with an iPod touch and that was like my portal to the world outside. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, it has come a long ways since 2012. Uh, there were places where I'd travel in 2012 that were completely still disconnected. You know, uh, I think that's probably a lot different now, 10 years later. 
Um, but I would go for like days or a week at a time, you know, without any internet access over there, which was what I wanted at that time in my life. Wow. I wanted to turn off the noise, turn off the family, turn off the pressure, turn off school, turn off work. Uh, I just wanted to turn off and try to like take steps that I wanted to take, knowing that there was zero pressure from anybody. I wanted to go to a place where nobody knew me and I could just walk around anonymously and do what I wanted to do and be who I wanted to be. And uh, I think it was, it was like a nice cover up because uh, on the outside, it kind of looks brave and exploratory. And it's like, wow, Colin's going to India. Dang, that's intense, you know? And you can be like, yeah, like this is a really cool thing. And on the inside, there's also like incredible emotional turmoil uh, and personal journeying, you know, that's, um, you know, very, very much more private, I would say. Um, so that was, that was a huge, big step. At, I was 23 at that time when I took off, I think. Yeah, at the beginning of 2012. And I hadn't graduated yet. I took a little time off from school. Um, and so that was like another big step, I would say, in this process of personal uh, exploration and, and like spiritual journey. It's really interesting because I guess you didn't fit in anymore. And you like that hit you in the face really vividly. So then you just went back to, I guess, phase one, creating yourself so that you could attract uh, more circumstances that did align with you. Um, so why did you go to India? And uh, it's also interesting that you just like pulled the trigger and went to India, whereas a lot of people I feel like would go through like five years of mental turmoil or something like that. And like, it would take a long time to build up to actually like just doing that. Yeah. Uh, well, I would say that India was also a continuation of a previously fun activity, which was just traveling for fun before that. I just really got a high from travel, from going to a new place, seeing new people, you know, new sights, new smells. It really turns your senses alive. And I think one of the really cool benefits of traveling that makes it so exciting is that it really brings you into the present moment completely. That's what happens to me when I go travel. Um, and when I say travel, I guess there's a lot of different nice. types of travel, different styles, you know. And um, like one thing I've noticed over time is like uh, some sometimes I hear travel referred to as this concept of let's go to a foreign country, but carry our uh, comfort and our like standards and our familiar practices with us. So let's go to a resort in ah. Mexico with an all you can drink bar, you know, and like sit on the beach. And I think that's fine. Just, you know, different strokes for different folks. But uh, in my context, when I talk about travel, it involves a lot of discomfort, which I think is a specific part of the experience. And I think in the context of me going out to journey and explore in that kind of introspective learning way, it really involved not taking the comfort with me or like not trying to reproduce the home place. It meant like trying to go completely submerse myself in another culture and feel like, how are these people doing it? What are they thinking? What is it like to go into a mosque? You know, like, what does it feel like to sit and listen to the chants from the, is it like an Imam? I think is the um, chanter uh, five times a day. Maybe I, I might have my word wrong, but just to actually like, sit with those things and really soak it in, you know, and try to try to be like, what does this feel like? Um, 
And I feel like I've just had these amazing experiences uh, traveling around the world in that way and just being like so curious. Wow. Um, and uh, it involves the approach for me kind of involves having just a very loose structure of a plan and then seeing what happens. And that to me is like one of the most fun nice. experiences that I've had in life is, uh, you know, when I took off to India, I had this idea in my mind that I wanted to see Mount Everest. Mount Everest is in Nepal. And for some reason, I didn't think through the fact that if I arrive in India in January, I can't just go to the Himalayas in the winter. <laughs> and so I landed. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was uh, in the first hostel, I think. And also, I slept under a stairwell on an Indian street the first night that I was there because I failed to book a hostel in time and was like, I'll figure it out with this travel book. And my flight was oh. delayed at 10 p.m. And so I was like downtown Mumbai, 23 years old and sleeping under a stairwell on a street with a knife in my pocket because I was like scared for my life, you know, and <laughs> like I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> That was, that was like a big start to the India experience, you know, sleeping on the street. Uh, and then the first hostel that I got to, people were like, oh, that's cool. You want to go to Mount Everest? That'll be great. So when are you going? And I was like, well, I thought I might head up there now. And they're like, you can't go till April. No plan. Very, very loose structure of a plan uh, or critical thought with seasonality. And um, people were like, well, you should probably go south because uh, it's warmer down south and there's also lots of cool things in southern India. OK, so I started traveling south and um, I ended up meeting somebody who was going to volunteer teaching kids in Sri Lanka. And she was like, oh, do you want to just come to Sri Lanka with me and we'll go, you know, teach kids volunteer? And it's like, yeah, let's do it. So I went from no plan. Nice. To these really cool uh, experiences, you know, and. To, it always feels like in that context when something totally unexpected and surprising happens like that, like going to Sri Lanka, I didn't even know what Sri Lanka was at that point in my life. And then you go do it and you have these wild experiences. Like I uh, still jump off cliffs for fun and I met cliff divers in Sri Lanka who jump off a Dutch fort uh, to make money with tourists. And so tour like Western wow. tourists, they see these Sri Lankan guys and they're like, okay, everybody, we're going to dive off here and uh, come put your money in for the show. They would use me in the show and be like, and uh, five more dollars if this white guy jumps with us. And people, I would be like, what, me? <laughs> <laughs> and we made like a big display of it. And nice. So just weird, cool, random experiences like that that always seem so cool in hindsight. And you couldn't even plan it if you had wanted to plan it. You know, that's not even an option in your brain to plan things like that. Um, so anyways, I think I was just trying to relate back to my style of travel and maybe, uh, maybe why I was taking off or, uh, sorry, I lost the plot here. What was the original that we were on, on this one? That's okay. I, I think we were just like talking about, um, why you, you went to India specifically, but I think it's cool that you go with the intention of not having a plan. Cause I guess when you do that is the reasoning it puts you in a situation where you seize the moment and kind of lose yourself more and then in doing that you, it kind of brings out a different side of you that you couldn't um predict would happen and then that i guess when that side gets brought out it's just like i, I can relate with some instances like when you seize the fucking moment like that you know and you just like go on this crazy experience i mean yeah that i don't know that's yeah amazing. and then i would just add to it that um i think 
the lack of expectation or specific schedule means that your mindset is that anything that happens is good. Your tire gets a flat and then locals take you in and you have dinner on a dirt floor having a local Indian meal, uh, which is the story that happened. <laughs> and then you're like, now I'm amazed by the generosity of strangers on the other side of the world. Uh, I'm so grateful for this experience that they're helping me that I didn't even think I deserved help. Uh, and we're having this cool experience that now I can be excited and share with other friends who also think it's exciting, you know, versus like, oh, I just rode a motorcycle and nothing interesting happened. Um, so that's like a really interesting mm. philosophy sort of for life as well. It feels like in our Western kind of capitalist business world, especially, uh, it feels like we get so deeply into do mode that, uh, you know, we have schedules and goals and we're trying yeah. to all accomplish things and we're always trying to grow and reach and strive. And sometimes it feels like we just totally don't have space for the unexpected to actually be like a beautiful experience where I'm on my way to work in my little Toyota to go to the corporate office and I get a flat tire and it's the worst experience of the day. And now everything's ruined because my morning meetings are, I can't be there. People are where's Cullen. And now somebody's missing their sales goal because my data didn't show up. It's like, okay, the whole day is ruined because something unexpected happened. Completely different than in travel context yeah. where it's like, wow, something completely unexpected happened and life is fantastic, <laughs> which is part of the structure that we build into our lifestyle or something. Um, maybe, maybe you can live in that kind of Western corporate type situation and still maybe there's like more opportunity to build flexibility or something. I'm kind of questioning that now, right now for the first time, if there is like that flexibility in that style or but I think the concept of mindset at least definitely applies for sure. Yeah. I was going to say like, I guess if you have no expectation, there can be no frustration. Right. And um, you just appreciate everything that's happening, whether it's good or bad, it's like still good, I guess. Um, it's interesting. Like there's gotta be a balance with, cause it's good to strive to want to accomplish certain things, um, you know, and tie it to like some impact on other people. Uh, whether that's like in a corporate setting, an entrepreneurial setting or artistic, whatever it may be. So I guess it is interesting though, trying to, I guess I always just encourage myself and other people to embrace like multiple different layers of looking at things so that you can kind of just have a balance and do it all, so to speak. So like you can strive and accomplish, but you can also reinforce, you know, character values, like not expecting too much and not getting frustrated and still appreciating it when it doesn't go down. Um, I don't know if maybe I know that you've bounced from being like one end on the spectrum to career to adventure. So if you, you know, have any thoughts around that? Yeah. I mean, this is a work in progress for me as well. Um, I have done a lot of bouncing back and forth between the extremes, I would say, of kind of going hardcore towards a very structured, uh, you know, goal oriented path versus completely unstructured and let's take six months off and go to the other side of the world and just kind of wander around and explore and learn and take classes or go volunteer and that type of thing. Uh, so I don't know, like, uh, there, there definitely is not one, uh, mold, right? I think that's pretty evident is that it seems, seems like yeah. some people are totally happy in the hardcore drive mode and can stay in it. And, um, for me, maybe part of my dynamic is that I just really, um, maybe like change is really 
exciting. It's like a part of life sort of, you know, it's, um, it's like, it's growing, it's leaving old behind, it's learning new things. It's like part of life, right? Is we're all, we're all changing and feels like part of the human challenge is sort of to be flexible with that change. It's like we all, as time goes on, maybe it seems like humanity is uh, trying really hard to control everything. You know, we're like trying to control aging and trying to control our exposure to, you know, mm. global pandemics and like engineer our way around some of these things to create this like safe little insulated bubble where we have complete control. Uh, and I don't know if that's necessarily the end all be all, you know, like is a world where we have 100% control of everything. Is that definitely like the best situation in the end? I'm not sure. I'm kind of just asking an open-ended question to myself as well. Um, Cause to me, it sounds like some of, it feels like some of the beauty in life comes from not always being in control. And then I think there's a challenge sometimes because, you know, sometimes being not in control hurts, right? Like my yeah. friend Miller dies unexpectedly. It's like, this freaking sucks. And I, uh, now I'm really angry and upset and emotions. And, um, yeah. but I, I think that part of like my recent learning experience into some of the plant medicine healing world is, uh, like a mindset shift to where maybe there is a way to actually experience some of these painful things and not reject them so strongly. Um, it's really like the resistance of the experience is what is causing the suffering. And if you can reach a state of distance mm. and accepting then the suffering goes away and i think you see that with all of these um people that have gone through really hard things you know people that have like lost limbs or lost eyesight or you know whatever kind of huge physical emotional spiritual challenge hurdle that they got past and then they come back and they're like even stronger you know and then we're sometimes on the outside with everything seems like mostly pretty good for us. And we're like, how are these people so resilient and bouncing back? I think a big part yeah. of that is sort of like accepting and, you know, you can like live in regret and remorse and anger of something that happened, or you can enter a state of non-resistance and then move forward. And so I'm just really starting to tap into that myself. I think I've been in a state of resistance for a long time. And maybe now I'm finally starting to try to actually teach myself and learn how to embrace that mindset. I think it really, uh, it showed up for me in a big way last year when I went to Peru and took that, I, I was, um, participating in ayahuasca ceremonies. And if you want to get into that now we can, but we can also back it up and save that for later. I was going to say naturally, honestly, it seems like we're going to be all over the place and I like it. So I'm down to go ahead and do that <laughs> instead of being chronological. <laughs> so yeah, that sounds good, man. Um, and, uh, before we get into that though, I really like what you said about, um, you know, kind of coddling us into this perceived, um, environment of control. Cause what that does is it, um, reduces our openness and causes us to be more fragile instead of anti-fragile. I'm not sure if you've read that book before. I haven't read it either, but a lot of people um, usually reference that book. Um, but yeah, it causes us to be more fragile, um, causes us to be more closed off, which inevitably causes more resistance like amongst each other and amongst like curiosity and other things. Um, and then yeah, reduces acceptance, all of the above. So yeah, I'd love to hear about how like ayahuasca kind of 
I guess, connected the dots for you? Yeah. Um, I mean, just, I'm kind of trying to think if there's any other, maybe like a dot that also needs to be connected before that to help with the story at all. Um, maybe I could briefly, maybe yeah. I can just summarize because we got through kind of India in 2012 and that part of the journey, uh, I came back. So sorry, I'm just going to like touch on the chrono chronological to try to get us fully to the ayahuasca because there, I think there is some useful stuff in there. Okay. Well, do you want to go into um, more travel experiences then? We could talk about like put all the pieces that led to that. Yeah. Perfect. From the past 10 year journey. Um, so yeah, like after India, I came back um, to finish my degree, uh, finished in spring of 2013, graduated Georgia tech and was sitting on a computer in our, uh, it was like our computer lab at the um, building, my like degree building. And I'm sitting in there one night late looking for jobs, kind of looking at career fair stuff and just feeling like really down and kind of uninspired of like, do I want to go work for like Northrop Grumman doing some kind of supply chain optimization? Like, this feels really weird, you know, <laughs> sitting there like, what am I doing? Uh, like without even searching for it, for some reason on that job board that I was looking at and a listing for a underwater photography internship in Mozambique, which is just Northeast of South Africa and Southern uh, Africa. And um, it, it showed up on the screen. I was like, what? This is crazy. What is that? I, like read through it and felt really inspired and just like, man, this is really cool. Of course it pays me almost nothing. And I'm about to graduate a really hard degree program, you know, where I could go make a bunch of money. That's sort of like the carrot at the end of the degree, right? Is now you get to make a bunch of money. That's the whole thing. And my first response was like, um, ah, do photography. <laughs> <Made it. laughs> People in my life have been like, I think sort of baffled at times, <laughs> maybe me too. Like what is going on with this person? Um, but I did it. I finished degree engineering degree and now we're going to Africa. Let's do it. And uh, so I went down there and it was just like a really awesome experience. I lived in this kind of bungalow um, overlooking the ocean on a sort of a remote beach in the coastline of Mozambique. And it's like white sand, turquoise water, um, that part of the ocean. It's like the Indian Ocean is mostly to the east side of Africa. And then you have Madagascar, which is a huge island just off the kind of southeastern tip, you know. And so there's like a huge channel of water that comes down from the Indian Ocean that goes towards the uh, southern ocean. And in that channel is just like an insane amount of biodiversity and life because of how many nutrients are flowing through that space. So you've got humpback whales migrating through there. You've got whale sharks coming to breed. You've got giant manta rays doing their thing. The tiny life, like these little itty bitty things, wow. you know, there's these guys called nudie branches, which are these like elaborate rainbow colored slugs that live under the ocean. Interesting. <laughs> With your camera, you're like face down on the reef at this tiny thing, amazed by the complexity. Oh, yeah, nice. it's like incredible experience. And, uh, I was with a bunch of people who were also doing photography. So we were collaborating. We were getting out of the water after a scuba dive and being like, did you see that? It's incredible. You know, like scuba diving with a whale on wow. in that space was one of the most incredible experiences of my entire life. Uh, like a, a humpback ran past us Damn. on our safety stop back after a dive up to the surface. And just seeing a creature the size of a house swim past you that has like a Lex intelligence yeah. that we don't understand at all. You know, whales like sing songs, communicate with each other and have stories. It's like, 
what is this world that we're living in? It's just like amazing, you know? <laughs> right? The feeling is incredible. Um, to actually, you know, we see all these pictures on Instagram and social media and stuff, and we it feels like we're so saturated now with the image of all these things, but it's so different to go actually feel it. And I wonder if sometimes mm -hmm. we're like forgetting that, like the true value of actually going to experience these things for ourselves instead of how many countless hours collectively does the human consciousness spend looking at pictures of the experience. And then that leads to all kinds of emotions that are like, I wish I could do that. I'll never do that. I regret not having done that. Uh, you know, like self-centric uh, or like negative spiral thoughts. At least that's been my experience. So I, I just had an incredible experience there. Uh, and I thought that maybe I would go into underwater photography. And I still kind of have a thought of doing that because I do feel kind of, uh, I feel interested in the idea of trying to preserve our planet. Uh, that does feel like going, kind of linking back to some purpose nice. mission. It feels like if anything is while it feels yeah. like that principle of leave something better than you found it. Um, you know, if everybody in the world treated the earth like that, it feels like things might just be fine rather than let's just try to use and abuse sort of, or uncontrollably grow and so on. Um, so I'm still interested in that path, but I got away from it then because I met a girl who was um, very adventurous and traveling uh, mindset like me. And she was like, Hey, do you want to backpack across Central Africa? <laughs> I was like, yes, <laughs> let's do that. And so we took off the um, hitchhiking for a lot of it. We literally put our thumbs out on the highways, uh, you know, in Zambia. It was fantastic. Oh, wow. And um, some of those types of things I would not even do in the United States, you know, like I felt so free and much safer over there just because of the cultural mindset, the energy, the, um, you know, like there's no thought that the truck mm. driver is like uh, a gun holding, Rapist. kill you on the truck drive <laughs> and throw your body in the river, that type of thing. In Africa, people are just like, oh, get it. You know, it's like, <laughs> and I actually came back from a trip one time and tried to hitchhike in Sandy Springs, just north of Atlanta, where I grew up, and nobody would pick me up. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh. nobody in my own community will pick me up because of the image of a hitchhiker in the United States. You know, it's like, instead mm. of sort of like, get a job, get a car, man. Like, why, why are you out on the road? That type of thing. And in Africa, everybody's out on the mm. road. <laughs> the whole town is out walking down the road and if a truck drives by, like everybody hops in the back of the truck and let's go down the road together. Um, so just to see some of that mindset, well, is just really uh, kind of heartwarming at times. And it reminds you, one, I think it reminds you of how amazing human spirit and generosity can be, especially towards complete strangers. And two, it really undermines a lot of the narrative yeah. that we hear, like in mainstream media, it's so the messages that we receive a lot of the time are so based in fear and Dude, yeah. it's what like draws attention and draws eyeballs and we want to see conflict or we're like addicted to seeing conflict and uh, confused energy and stuff. And so to actually go out there and experience it. Yeah. Pretty um, eye opening, you know, to get away from the, the narrative and be like, wow, here's what I'm experiencing and it feels good. I feel safe. I'm enjoying people are helping me. Um, and just to say, uh, I ended up getting back to Cape Town, South Africa with Tello is her name. And uh, we, she was from Canada. I was from the United States. 
And so she was a marine biologist, which is part of why she was doing the underwater photography in Mozambique. We got back to Cape Town. Both of us had very little cash funding at that point. Neither of us wanted to ask parents for plane tickets and money and support. We're like, we're independent adults. We got to figure this out. Let's just hitchhike <laughs> across the ocean. Like that's a clear path to get back home is do the same thing we did across. <laughs> <laughs> and so we literally went down to the docks in Cape Town and started knocking on the side of boats. And we would literally say, Ahoy. Wow. <laughs> and uh, we talked to various people because, um, you know, there are like private uh, boat owners, yacht owners will need de deckhands to help them sail their own boat back across the ocean. So you can get jobs and some of it will be paid. Some of it might not be paid. But we found this one guy who had UNESCO flag on the side of his boat, which um, and then uh, NOAA, uh, which is like National Oceanographic Atmospheric Association or something like that. So it was kind of indicating. Okay. Um, you know, organization, like scientific study type stuff. And so we we're like, oh, that's really interesting. I wonder what this guy's doing. And he invited us on. I think the first time we talked to him, his name was Peter, Peter Flanagan. Really cool old dude, like early 60s, I think. And um, we talked to him probably for like two or three hours the first night. He just said, yeah, come on board. What are you guys doing? Started a conversation. And he um, pretty much at the end of the conversation was like, well, what's your plan? And we we're like, I don't know. We don't have a plan. Like we're looking for a trip across That's a good the ocean. question. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, okay, well, um, I've got two rooms downstairs. Like, do you want to, you want to move on the boat? <laughs> like, yeah, let's do that. Nice. We moved on this guy's boat and, um, and he, he was saying that there was a mission coming up to go across the ocean doing research for NASA. And so we're like, oh, that sounds super awesome. This was now uh, late 2013. Um, but, he was wrong. There was not a mission coming up. He was a dreamer. He was in talks with people to make a mission. Um, but he, uh, uh, he, he overplayed the promise of that mission. It didn't come through. So I ended up uh, actually flying back home from South Africa. I left my things on the boat with the promise of returning and I really wanted to do the boat thing thinking, Oh, it might just be a couple months. Um, it was not a couple months. I ended up uh, coming back to the United States and I picked up some work. I did a couple of random things. Uh, I moved to Colorado to work as a photographer on a ski slope because I felt like I wanted to learn how to snowboard. So let's move to the Rockies and snowboard. Um, that was a fantastic winter season, end of 2014. Still not ready, but Peter's emailing us being like, I know the mission's coming, guys, like soon enough. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, after Colorado. Wait, and, and what's the mission exactly? Yeah, the mission is related to ocean conservation as a contractor for some okay. organization that needs people and a boat to go out into the ocean and collect data or deploy something or retrieve something. Uh, so like the uh, Got it. Argo project, I don't remember what Argo stands for, but it's a kind of ocean monitoring surveillance tech. And they have these autonomous buoys that are solar powered. They have a little float raft on the surface and they're actually wave powered. So they have like a fin system that hangs down. It's like, um, I don't know, maybe a two meter cable that hangs down. And then as the float on the surface goes up and down with waves, those fins actually help propel the thing forward it's like you get extra power from the motion of the wave propelling you um but those things they finally die um batteries run out of juice that type of thing and so like nasa or whoever's sponsoring some of those floats need somebody to go out into the deep ocean 
to retrieve it and put a new one out. It's like a giant uh, grid where at every little lattice point you have a buoy. So you have like a whole, you know, checkerboard of um, buoys out there. And then you can monitor like uh, ocean currents and temperatures and salinity. And you can just study effects that we think are, you know, maybe it's like human caused effects that we're studying, trying to observe. Um, so that was the mission. Got and, it. Um, after Colorado, summer 2015, went to Iceland to do my dive master. I wanted to get my dive master in a cold water environment so that maybe I could go to Antarctica one day. Still really want to go to Antarctica and um, just experience like working down That'd there. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so that's where I met my current girlfriend, Sago. Uh, she and I were diving together. We connected then, but time wasn't right. So um, had a great time in Iceland. And then Skip finally called. We called him Skip for short, like Skipper. And he was like, okay, it's time. So we went back down to South Africa, 2015. The band got back together. Uh, it involves three months of like hardcore renovation on the boat because Skip had been sitting there in port, like in port for so long that barnacles had grown up on the hull. Um, things were kind of falling apart. He hadn't taken great care of the boat because uh, he didn't have the funding. That was part of the deal was like the mission was bringing the funding to, mm. um, you know, sail and keep things in good order. So we had this like intense three months of um, scraping barnacles and rebuilding stanchions and gluing things and cleaning things, sewing sails, um, which was a really cool learning experience. And we got the boat all ready. We left from Namibia, kind of like sailed up the coast of South Africa and then left from Namibia to cross and incredible moment like going across an ocean with a sailboat um with the power of the wind i mean that was just a cool experience to be out there without the sound of an engine in your ears it's just so cool to use the power of nature to like move it was incredible it's a, a huge adventure just the concept of sailing across a big body water that's like integral in the human experience you know I mean, the, the Polynesians and the Hawaiians, right? And like island people from early stages of uh, expansion across Earth. Um, and then, you know, like the big sailboats in the 1600s and 1700s. And now it feels like we just have jets and we don't really need boats anymore. So we've kind of gotten away. Yeah. From yeah, it's cool to be like, okay, we're leaving land for 40 days. Do we have the food to survive? And um, like the only way we could communicate was with a satellite phone that sent very basic texts. Uh, so very little communication to the outside world. Wow. Just a very interesting experience. And the structure of it also is kind of cool that somebody has to be on watch at all hours of the day. And so we had a crew of, um, there was Ben, a South African, Orion, an Argentinian, Forrest was a South African girl, and then Tello is a Canadian girl, and me. So there's six crew and then the captain and a cat. Wow. <laughs> the boat cat. Nice. <laughs> and captain never had to go on watch. So it was between the five of us that we split four hour watches at 24 hours of the day. And because of the rotating schedule, you never sleep at the same time every single day. So uh -huh. I would be on watch the first night I might be on watch from midnight to 4am. I'm the only person awake, everybody else is sleeping. Uh, and you know, then the next night, based on the rotation, my next watch might be 6 p.m. to or 8 p.m. to 12 a.m. the next day. So your body kind of adapts to this variable sleep schedule where it's like, okay, I'm getting off watch at 4 a.m. Now I'm going to go sleep because I need to sleep. 
and it felt like you could get in touch sort of with your uh, body's needs more so. Like we have a very regimented structure, you know, breakfast, lunch, and yeah. dinner in normal daily life. In that context, it was like, okay, I need to eat something because I feel hungry, not because it's lunchtime. Uh, uh, that type of thing. Just getting more in touch with nature, you know, what's happening in the world around you, sort of. Wow. I, I was going to say, what were those uh, like hours between 12 and 4 like? Just you uh, sailing, only one awake, everyone else is sleeping. I bet that was just interesting being the only one up. <laughs> yeah. It's a very interesting um, reflection time, I would say. Um, you, most of it is darkness out there, but you can still see like in, in the nights when the moon is up um, and it's not cloudy overhead, you can see like a pretty good bit of the ocean lit up by the moon. And just to the only sound you hear is, you know, the sound of wind passing over the sail and like waves kind of going by the boat. And um, yeah, it definitely tuned out the noise, the busyness noise of life and the hustle of cities and, you know, exhaust fumes of machines. And that was cool. That was really like sort of a flow state experience, I would say. Um, and I mean, also though, I would say that I had one of the closest, I don't know if it was the closest encounter to death, maybe, but uh, intense experience uh, with death potential. Like during one of those 12 to four watches when I was by myself, we, um, everybody went to bed and I guess we had maybe somehow missed like a weather report because we didn't have any suspicion that there was some kind of storm front right ahead of us. Yeah. I don't know if that was a mistake or what we, we went to bed sleeping. Uh, everybody was just calm and like resting peacefully and maybe at like 3am ish, um, the boat started to pick up. You could feel the speed of the boat start to increase and we started to kind of keel over even more and pretty quickly oh. like keeled over like hard enough that plates started falling in the kitchen and things started to go sideways and you're like uh oh like something's oh. happening uh very quickly and so there was a bell uh just under like from the um the cockpit where the um steering the wheel <laughs> i haven't used these terms in years <laughs> um anyways there's a bell just um, down the stairs. And so I was like reaching for the bell. And before I could even hit the bell to call everybody up out of bed, like I need help. Everybody was flying out of their bed. Uh, like, what's going on? Something's terrible. Um, nobody grabbed their life jackets because everybody was in such a hurry. People literally fell out of their bed sideways. So everybody's, you know, in their boxer shorts coming up with no life jackets. And as this is happening, the rain is picking up very intensely. Uh, um, to the point that you can barely hear each other because of the wind and rain now ripping through your ears. And so the first thing we're up there and we're screaming, like we have to get the sails down because the boat is, there's too much power on the sails. If, if all the sails are up, you're like maximum power, maximum force, you know? And it's also really hard to take the sails down when you have maximum force on them. What you want to do is be predictive and have already taken down the mm. sails because as part of the process, you tension the sail to then pull the sail down. And so Orion and I are both army crawling up the deck to get to the forward sail to work on it while the people in the back are winching, uh. you know, and um, as, he and I are climbing up there to do that. They release the tension on the sail before we're ready to actually start pulling down. And so I stand up and the sail just goes wildly 
like releases its pressure and now it's flapping back and forth and you have like a half an inch or a quarter inch uh rope or you call all the ropes on a boat a line it's like a technical sailing term okay. i guess so the line it's like whipping back and forth and um hits me like clotheslines oh. me in the neck and knocks me on the deck and i slide like i hit the little rail of the side of the boat and there's just the side of the boat has maybe like a one inch um like a rain kind of catch lip and then there's like a couple stanchions and two little metal wires between those stanchions. So it's not like a whole lot of protection yeah. here. Uh, and so I'm hitting that on my back and the storm is raging and I'm looking at the ocean, just oh. right there, the darkness of the ocean, you know, Wow. <laughs> I'm looking at it. And if you go overboard in the darkness into that water without a life jacket, it's over. It's game over in a storm. There's no chance. Even if you're yelling, nobody will hear you. They would, there's yeah. no chance you're gone. And if you have a life jacket the way you're supposed to, then we actually have beacons that would send out like a GPS signal and they would be able to track the beacon and come okay. find me. Um, from that moment on, we wore life jackets at night for yeah. watch. And um, we also never failed with all of the sail, like full sail to start a night watch. <laughs> so the end of that story is that we did get the sails down. And by the time that we got everything neatly packaged up, the storm was mo more or less passing and we were all just drenched and tired. And uh, we were like, okay. Oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> so, yeah, it was an intense experience. Dang, man. And, um, so did the storm yeah. pass by pretty quickly? Like how, how long did the storm last? What that storm was, they call it a squall front, uh, which is, um, it's basically like an intense, I think it's just caused by uh intense kind of like thermocline where wind um maybe it's uh, warm air rises right so maybe there's like warmer air drafting up and then colder air like smashing back down and i don't exactly know how it forms in the ocean but there's literally like a wall they call it a squall front because there's a wall of wind and water and you can see it if you're in the daytime you can see this gigantic gray wall and you can just go around it uh it was nighttime and it was also a new moon so we had no light that night hardly and we apparently missed wow. the weather yeah a lot of mistakes on our side i would say like that doesn't need to happen <laughs> did uh, but did happened. you did you get any like life flash before your eyes type of feeling whenever you were hanging over the water like that or or like what do you think about the next day yeah i think it was just so intense in that moment that uh i didn't have a life flash before my eyes, I think it was more like finish the job, get back up, pull the sail down, you know, gather with your friends. And then afterwards being like, whoa, actually, that was really bad. That was totally a bad move wow. because uh, when you have your life jacket on, the idea is that you can also um, strap like a metal guy wire from, you know, your life raft or your life vest to a wire that runs up the whole length of the boat. So Orion and I should have both had life vests on and we should have been strapped into the boat so that if I somehow got hit overboard, I would still be attached. That was not what happened. We did not take the proper protocol. Damn. <laughs> so we all made it. Damn, that is wild. Thank God y'all made it. <laughs> it's crazy like how these experiences, although it's like, that's like a death defying, like dangerous experience. It's just, I kind of look at it as it just adds to your life quality though, these types of experiences. And it adds to like how curious and interesting you are as a person. So it's like, even on the surface, it might seem like, oh, we made some mistakes. It's like, I don't know. It's still just like a cool life experience to add <laughs> to your life. So I don't know if like you think about it before you get in those experiences that way or not, but 
yeah, I just, I think that's really cool and yeah, kind of inspiring too. Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, those are the stories that kind of feel like worth talking about. Right? Yeah. That's why we're talking about that, not what I did on a Wednesday at Home Depot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Shake it up <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Nice. I mean, a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. Big, big cool thing that I was hoping the mission would kind of culminate in purpose. I was interested in the conservation aspect, you know, like working with scientists. Um, I think they were based out of the Jet Propulsion Lab in California, which felt really cool. You know, we're going to like meet these cool scientists and contribute some knowledge. They were actually going to install equipment on our boat and we we're going to, you know, go use it and report back findings. And part of the reason they wanted our boat was because it was a sailing boat. It was a schooner. So it had two masts. I think the definition of a schooner is that the rear mast or the stern mast is higher than the forward mast and then there's also a catch which is where the forward uh, aft mast is higher than the stern mast so ours was a schooner is a really beautiful ship it was um maybe i'm not supposed to call it a ship i forget there's all these like terminologies in sailing that people will get angry at you like if you call it a rope but anyways we had these hopes that there would kind of be like professional purpose you know in addition to the adventure of it because it was a a huge fun adventure and if we could somehow wrap that into like a money-making enterprise that also felt like that was going towards good then fantastic that's like winning recipe and so high hopes yeah. and halfway across the ocean sometime after that storm situation uh the captain collapsed in the kitchen area or the galley and was on the floor we didn't really know what was going on we kind of had known that he sounded sick before the trip like he was coughing a lot we had known he was a smoker and we had actually asked him to go to a doctor to get a diagnosis of anything or just check yourself out and before we left uh south africa to sail he had told us that he did it and he was like oh yeah i'm good to go you know he's kind of like an old salty dog sailor like the classic man against the ocean thing you man know the sea. let's go <laughs> um but it turns out that he had collapsed because uh he had lung cancer from smoking we assume from smoking his whole life and the lung cancer had uh, metastasized to his brain and so he was uh, starting to experience problems with his cognitive ability uh, i think his vision was starting to close in he stopped being able to read books he was having terrible migraine headaches and would just be in bed, unable to get out or help. And so we knew it was bad. We didn't know how bad it was just like, man, this is rough. And for the second half of the crossing, it was getting worse and worse. And we, I think we texted the support staff in South Africa, but there wasn't anything they could hardly do, you know? Um, and so we started keeping a log just of what, what were we doing to try to help address his symptoms? You know, I think we were giving him like some pain meds maybe and keeping a wet cloth on his head, keeping him reclined in bed and so on. Uh, and so we basically finished the second crossing almost without his guidance, which looking back now, I think that, well, how this story goes is he ends up going to a hospital immediately in the Caribbean where we landed. I think we landed on St. Vincent and took him immediately to a hospital. The doctor there took a scan, I think of his brain and said, you need to go say goodbye to your family in South Africa because you have two weeks oh, to live, wow. which was the case. It was almost that short that he had left to live. 
Um, but I think that what happened in the story is, uh, I think he knew that that mission needed to happen for the well-being of his livelihood. Is this is all just my interpretation? Um, but I think he knew that if he reported back with the cancer diagnosis, he would not be allowed to sail. The mission would completely mm. fall apart. I think it was an amount of money that was worthwhile to go do this mission. Um, and he needed it. I think he was mostly like kind of a poor broke old sailor. Wow. Um, so we needed the money and I think that he put together a crew in us where my guess is that he actually knew we would be okay without him. I suspect that he knew he was like on his way out and still wanted to get out the door. Like, let's just start this mission and get everybody out the door. And then if we can start the mission, we'll probably finish the mission. Like somebody will probably finish it. That's my suspicion. I don't know any of that for sure. Um, but it was like kind of weird losing a captain. I mean, it was definitely a challenge losing sort of the, he's the source of strength and guidance. You know, he's got, 40 50 years of ocean sailing experience and now it's all of us were under age 27 or something is five kids you know like 24 to 27 ish wow. um and they're just kind of navigating and i think ben had the most experience and he's you know we're looking at the weather report kind of being like what do we do like do we change course here and i just remember some tenseness around that maybe some of the other uh, crew that I was with, maybe they wouldn't reflect on it. Like it was such a stress experience, but I remember being odd that our captain is now like bedridden and we, we are our own help. So it was a cool experience and self-sufficiency at a minimum to be like, okay, it's up to us. We got to figure this out. And also wondering like, what do we do with a body? If he passes on the boat, do we throw him overboard? Do we, um, do we throw him in the freezer? Can he fit in the freezer? Like, um, do we do we keep a log of our records so we don't get accused of murder when we get back? Are we at risk here? Um, there were like a lot of kind of weird thoughts. Wow, happening around that time. So, uh, so really quick, really quick. So, are you just like fully immersed in this experience? You're not having any thoughts of like, yeah, this is too much for me. I'm like, I'm gonna bail type of thing, or like you're just like fully committed to the mission, basically. Yeah. Um... I would say if anything, the hard part at that point was um, like relationship challenge with Tella. Um, and I'm, I'm like a pretty hardcore avoidant attachment style. If you're familiar with the attachment styles, there's avoidant, secure and anxious. And so the avoidant walks out the door of conflict, you know, and then just goes and bees alone. Go, I go by myself into the woods and then I come back later and act like things mm. are fine and actually not, things are yeah. not fine. So there were challenges sort of with relationships. I think it's tough for anybody to live on a sailboat for 40 days with five other people and, um, you know, stay peaceful for the most part. I think that we actually did a fantastic job. Um, there's just not much space, you know, it's like hard to get away from anybody. If you ever do need personal space, it's really challenging to get that you're constantly on top of each other. Um, we're talking about a 60 foot boat here, you know, it's quite yeah. small. You can go one of the eighth personal spaces on the, um, just on the forward, there's like a little seat on the very bow of the boat. Um, and so you could sit on that, which is really cool. Cause, um, you could just, there's a little rail and like a wood seat and you can dangle your legs. And when you look down, all you see is your feet over the water. And so you can just watch the ocean, like pass below your feet. And there were times when dolphins in the middle of the ocean, pods of dolphins would come and just be 
with oh, you. You know, you're sitting there sick. just watching dolphins. Um, but yeah, I think I was I was still like pretty into the mission. Like the captain passing, I think definitely injected a lot of doubt. And maybe I was looking for an out. Um, but the I think the really big moment in addition to the captain came on Christmas day, I was trying to take a self portrait of our crew in the galley together. We had, um, you know, we had a little Christmas morning ceremony <laughs> and, uh, set up a tripod and we hit a swell in the ocean and it just knocked the camera over and broke the camera basically, which was sort of one of my prized possessions. Aww. It was like a decent quality Nikon and, I was really sad because I really enjoyed documenting with the camera. I just enjoy the art of it. And it kind of gets me into an experience from cool angles and observing what's happening around me. So it took that away from me. I felt like a deep sense of loss and pain at that. But the other thing that I realized was that I felt like I didn't have the financial security to replace it with the quality that I wanted to replace it with comfortably. You know, cameras can be pretty expensive, like some thousands of dollars, depending on what you get. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at my bank account. At that point, I hadn't worked a uh, real job, you know, following my engineering degree. And so I've just kind of been like, uh, what, boot bootstrapping it or like shoelace it, just traveling on a shoelace type thing, you know, and um, making it work. And so I, I was sitting on the bow of the boat that day on that little seat. And I was just crying. Uh, I was like really sad, you know, I felt lonely in the ocean to be away from family on Christmas wow. day and couldn't really communicate with the outside world. I had just broken this thing that was valuable to me. And I felt like insecurity and anxiousness for my own sort of responsibility in life. It was kind of like, okay, I'm 25 now at this point, something like that. And, um, kind of feeling like I need to take ownership for my life in a way that I haven't done yet. Um, and so that was like a moment in addition to the captain situation, in addition to sort of like the avoidant running away from relationship challenge stuff that, uh, I, I was sitting there kind of thinking like, okay, I need to go actually use my degree. That was like the phrase in my head, um, put my degree to use. And what that looks like, I think is just kind of apply for like some big name, you know, some familiar big corporate name and go have like a title, go, uh, make a salary you know, try to like attach some worth, some personal worth to the number, make a paycheck, make a salary. And um, part of that too was like, you know, dad relationship, father, son stuff. Like my dad will be proud. That was like a point that I remember feeling at that point of life, um, you know, but he was like very much uh, the formal, formal uh, system mm. type guy worked a, he worked a nine to five whole life from like age 21 until age 65 plus wow. uh he had his music so he he had a really cool creative outlet that i think liberated him from sort of the mundane uh tedium of daily uh nine to five um but that, that was some of the motivation so i ended up uh getting off the boat and took i took the captain to new york city to fly him home from new york um, I put him, I took him through like through airport security with a wheelchair. Cause at that point he couldn't stand hardly. He was just, he was kind of keeled over. Wow. Like, and uh, yeah, I was going to say one of the last images I have of him, it was on the boat during a kind of stormy moment. And I think it was just me and him. I was like on watch by myself. I think it was at night. He came out and I remember him at the helm. He's spinning the wheel, you know, he's, he's looking up at the wind and the sails and you know, it's just this energy. He's like, 
he's cursing at the ocean, literally cursing at it. And that's like his love language, with the ocean, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> it's like, wow. This <laughs> is cool, like quintessential image of a uh, old salty captain fighting, like battling the elements. And that's like his expression of love in my interpretation. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I, he was loving that experience, I think. Um, so that's like a cool image I think of him. And, uh, but my real last image was taking him to the airport in New York and I dropped him off at the gate and I remember him, uh, looking at me and he just said, he would call us like squire. I don't know why he picked that word. That's like a South African thing or him <laughs> thing. I don't know. He said like, see you soon squire or see you soon pal. One of those. And, um, I remember being like, there's no sense of closure here. Mm -hmm. This kind of like really feels bad to me because he is totally in ignorance of his situation. I don't know how his brain was compartmentalizing what was happening, but we were telling him like, you got to go home and you got to talk to your family because there's not much time. And he somehow was like not registering that or choosing to not even acknowledge it. So I remember that moment of just like saying goodbye to a person, you know, you're not going to see again, but not having the uh, ability to sort of like give it the like the honor like proper or, something, or like the respect or yeah like a proper goodbye it was just like so unceremonious for this person who was a big part of my life at that point to walk out the door and be like see you soon and on my side i'm not going to like try to correct him you know i'm not going to be like wait you're you're going to die so we should say goodbye i just i guess i didn't feel the liberty to try to change whatever he was yeah. thinking and so that's like another moment similar to uh, miller a little bit where it's like an unceremonious ending where you don't really get to say goodbye um it's an interesting kind of psychological effect so um yeah another experience with death there i think which is like i've that seems to be like a continuing theme and part of my journey is this like relationship that we have with death and loss and ending and then moving on, which I know we all have in various ways. Um, so that's, that's like the launch now into uh, like a more professional kind of corporate work path based on the degree that I got, which I didn't necessarily ever totally choose myself. And this is all sort of part of the evolving journey that we're talking about. Yeah. Well, before we get into that, it is interesting how with the captain, you like had the opportunity to say goodbye, but you almost had to accept a goodbye that would meet his standards as opposed to yours, which is interesting that it unfolded that way. Yeah. I'm not like sure what else other thoughts to add to that, but that's just very interesting. Yeah. It's a, just an, it's just like a, a twist, a little bit of how we even get to process you know, it's like, it's hard to process those losses. I think if you don't even get to fully acknowledge it, I think there is value to actually not ignoring what's happening. And that felt very much like we're kind of ignoring this situation right now. So let's, wow. and we're just going to kind of like move on, you know? Did it just move like really quickly too? Yeah. For all of us. Yeah. I would say, cause we, I mean, we were not thinking death in, uh, I think the the boat period, the preparation was like September to November of 2015. And then we took off like late December-ish, I think mid-December. And he was gone by, um, I think he died late February of 2016 or March. So it, it did happen like fairly quickly. And we were not thinking death until 
you know, there was no diagnosis until we got to St. Vincent. And then they said two weeks. See ya. Damn. Well, um, before we move on to the, the career path, what was like, I guess, the big takeaway from that whole experience? Um, not just with the captain dying, but like the whole exploration experience as a whole. Yeah. Um, well, it definitely feels unresolved. There was a lot of hope in that experience at that point of life. That experience was trying to take autonomy in my life into a situation that felt like it was doing good work. It was adding something useful to the world. It was for a mission that I cared about thinking about ocean conservation, uh, hoping to become financially sustainable on some level, like make some kind of paycheck doing this, um, while having an adventure and being excited, you know, that was what that whole thing represented was sort of like, that was the picture sort of, of these are all the pieces Yeah, we can scuba dive. We can do photography. We can learn. Have adventures together, explore the world. It really felt like this big, like, oh man, this is it. And then it felt like it got snatched away, sort of. And I think, I think that uh, I'm processing right now that I actually avoided some of the situation. Like it wasn't just snatched away because the truth was the boat parked. I took the captain to New York, and during that process, I went home to Atlanta to see my family. Cause at that point I had been gone for like eight months from family or something. And so I took that moment to sort of go process myself, my, my own stuff, because I knew that South Africa was going to send another captain. But my assumption was that whatever dynamic a new captain brought was just not probably going to be nearly as good as what we had. Part of why we all agreed to the mission was because we knew the dynamic we knew each other, you know, we had already lived with each other before sailing for three plus months. And, um, you know, it's like, you're trusting your life into these people's hands. Um, there's like a lot of trust when I go to sleep and somebody else is on watch that we're going to be okay because they're keeping us safe. Um, and the same feeling of the captain, like I'm putting my life into this captain's hands cause I trust his expertise and his skill and wisdom. And so I kind of undermined it myself. I think I just assumed like whatever captain they sent is just probably not going to be great. But I was also avoiding the challenges with Tela. Like I, I went into total avoidant mode and um, didn't address like anything really deeply, just tried to isolate. And um, I think I was on one hand, like using it as an excuse to sort of be like, Oh, well, a new captain is going to suck. So let's just see what happens. And if it sucks, then I'll stay gone. Mm -hmm. And more or less, that's kind of what happened. I don't know if it only happened because my energy had already started that kind of distancing from the whole situation that maybe then the other four crew that were still on the boat, if they all kind of felt that and was like, okay, this whole thing's falling mm -hmm. apart. I'm not sure. Um, but I know that they all got the new captain. It took like two or three months of time until, so they actually just hung out on an Island, like what a gallivanting and like, you know, doing whatever they do, like having fun, working on the boat, um, spent two or three months. And I think that was a timeline. I could be off on some details. If any of them ever listen to this, they might be like, that's all right. <laughs> but roughly that's what happened. This whole story is inaccurate. <laughs> um, I'm open to fact checking. If anybody ever fact checking on here. Uh, so, and they crossed from St. Vincent through the Panama canal and then got to the West coast of Mexico. 
And at that point, I got the message from them that was like, hey, this situation is not great. We're all going separate ways. And everybody just disbanded at that point. And I think the new captain brought five more people from South Africa to replace all of us as we just totally dispersed. Mm. And so I think just that the, I think you're asking about like a lesson from that experience. And, um, I think there, there was like, um, maybe there's something good and positive about looking at that situation, you know, and like my energy with the camera was to take responsibility and say, okay, if I want photography in my life, I need to, to earn it. And, uh, this path right now is not going to earn me a new camera, um, with the money that I need to buy it. So, I need to go take care of that and I need to go actually make use of my degree. That was sort of, um, that was like pressure that I put on myself. I think, you know, somewhat from parent pressure. Um, and sometimes we just put this pressure and think it's from them. You know, my parents were not necessarily saying like, you need to get off that boat and go get a job. They were not saying that explicitly. And nobody in society was saying, Colin, you're failing in some way by not having had some big name corporate job. But there was some kind of pressure in me that felt like I'm failing on some level, like I'm not living up to something. Was it, um, and so I think that's like a... It's, I was going to say, was it kind of some internal rebellion to the status quo and like resentment to that as well that maybe you just kind of kept circling back to? Yeah, maybe. I think it feels challenging to be on the outside of the structure. It feels at the same time um, like interesting and unique and you sort of get praised sometimes for being like, wow, Cullen's making his own path out there, you know, and friends would send me kind of like, wow, good job. That that type of energy mm, was like, you're doing yeah. it. Um, but then inside I'm like racked with self-doubt and confusion and like, am I doing it? I'm not sure I'm doing it. Am I doing something wrong? What is right even, you know? Um, but I know how most people were doing it is most people my age from my college were starting into career paths, you know, with salaries and labels like titles and progress and professional goals and status. Um, and so there is like a FOMO or a, I'm not doing it somehow, that type of feeling. So um, on one hand, I was just trying to say maybe that the positive aspect of the energy was like, okay, I do want to take authority and autonomy and like be a responsible adult that can set goals and achieve them. I want a camera. I'm going to go get it. And on the negative side, I think that there was like a lot of unhealthy avoidant behavior that was sort of like, I'm just going to run out the door and um, wow. see you later. Yeah. <laughs> like we're, we're just not going to talk about something. You're going to leave this here. <laughs> but wow. It's also easy for, I think like the blaming mind to be like, Oh, well like, it all got taken from mm. us because the captain died and you know, like, Oh, it's me. So I think that's, that's like the justify, that's the avoidant mind justifying the victim, victim mentality of that situation. Yeah. Wow. Totally. Um, I'm, re- I'm really glad that we uh, dialed this back to go in the chronological order. Cause I'm excited to see like the reflections you gained from the career path. Cause I asked you a question earlier on how people can establish a yeah. balance and like, you know, have it all in terms of like adventure, but striving towards goals, making an impact. And it seems like you were trying to do that with this sailing experience, but then it all kind of just like, slapped you in the face because that's just how the world is um and then yeah so you gained yeah. some positive lesson but also some negative lesson from it so yeah like i'm i'm excited to learn about this uh career path now so what, what does that look like yeah um 
the career path. I uh, came back to Atlanta, my home originally. Family's there. Some friends are there. Um, moved in with a buddy from college. Actually, Zach moved in. He was the guy who was, um, you know, sitting on the cliff with me running the woods back after Miller passed. And uh, I applied various positions, went through the whole process of um, like low self-esteem, getting rejected, you know, from companies, like not being noticed, feeling like, was my degree worthless? Um, went through like a couple of months of that job searching process, which I think most people at some point have experienced. And then uh, finally got an offer from Home Depot, uh, which is a local Atlanta company um, all over. You probably know Home Depot all over the United States and um, went into like a logistics analyst position, which pretty much sat me in a typical cube in a gray office. Uh, uh, and it was weird if you walked out of the office at 4.30, even though your work was done, it was expected to kind of sit there. And then at five o'clock every day, the entire office emptied out and people left. Oh go my home. gosh. And so that was very challenging uh, experience coming off of a sailboat and sort of the freedom and the adventure of that experience sailing. Um, it felt like, it felt like, I was a lion that had been on the prowl out in the world doing my own thing. And then I just walked into a cage and shut the door behind me and then sat quietly. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's the energy that I experienced going into that corporate environment. Um, but you know, with the positive upsides being like, well, I wanted to use my, to use my degree, so to speak. Um, I wanted to put something on my resume. I wanted to have done it um, rather than never have done it. Um, again, like going back to the idea of just like experiencing it versus, you know, thinking, oh, I don't want to do corporate. More like, oh, I want to go do it and suffer and then recognize. <laughs> yeah, at least you can check the box off. <laughs> yeah. And so I spent a lot of days at Home Depot um, just standing. I worked on the 16th floor of a corporate office in Smyrna, which kind of overlooks uh, the skyline of Atlanta, you can see way far to the north, um, Kennesaw Mountain, you can see out to the city to the south. And there's Atlanta's like a huge forest area. It's, it's kind of like a city in a forest. So you can see lots of green trees and stuff. And I can remember just in the summertime standing on the 16th floor, kind of like with my hand out on the window, and just like forehead, you know, looking outside and being like, I wish I was out there. Why? Why am I in here? <laughs> It's like a little kid, you know, looking out the window, like, why, why am I here? <laughs> um, a lot of pain. And um, I was able to keep it together for about 14 months, I think. And at that point, I just, I had made the money that I needed to buy the camera. I had accomplished that mission. Uh, and so at that point, it was like, well, I came, I did what I came to do. So why would I stay here in this pain? Like, I think I'll just leave. <laughs> And I was going through this existential angst one morning with Dixon, who's Miller's younger brother. And I, I think that's the first time I've mentioned his name, this interview, but he and I formed like a very deep connection uh, following Miller's passing and still to this day are um, in close contact. And he and I, um, we spent a lot of time in the angst circle. It's kind of, it kind of became like a codependent thing, I think, and some other maybe negative spiral human psychology stuff where you just 
you're in pain, somebody else's pain, and then you just kind of like spiral yeah. in that pain bubble. There was a morning where he and I were um, going through it. I'm sitting there and I'm just like, dude, I don't want to work at Home Depot anymore. I don't want to wake up and like plug these numbers. What is the <laughs> point? And uh, he was like, okay, well, he was trying to be the voice of reason. Like, let's calm things down, Colin. It's just like, it's just, it's okay. Like make a plan. It's, you don't have to be there forever. And I'm just on the couch, you know, staring at the ceiling. Like I can't do it. It's everything's bad. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm doing it. And I literally fired off an email to my manager at that, that moment that was like, Steve, I quit. Wow. <laughs> like no thought, no, it was avoidant, total avoidant again. Can't do it. I give up. I quit. Well, um, and Steve was just like, what? It's <laughs> like, <laughs> so this is like news to me. <laughs> he had no idea how much pain I was going through, I think. Well, it, Maybe on one side it's avoidant, but on the other side, I think it's good because you have an accountability to be in a circumstance that aligns with you instead of just like fitting a mold that's going to ultimately cause you to be unfulfilled in the long run. So I think that's like, you know, probably a positive thing to have. Yeah, right. I mean, it's interesting that I think almost every experience, it seems like every experience you can do the kind of yin yang thing, right? Like the light side, the dark side and spin it how do you want to look at it you want to spin it as um like that decision to leave home depot is actually like deeply aligned with my internal self and that's really you know i'm like going towards integrity with myself and really positive progress here <laughs> or do you want to be like oh, i just quit but don't you think that the way you frame it in your head causes you to attract the same type of energy that you're framing it in your head so that more positive things start happening to you yeah like you're saying uh does that action maybe sort of manifest more positive? Yeah, because yeah, because if or? you view it as um, like if you view it as the integrity path you were talking about and aligning yourself, well, then like you're viewing it in a positive way. So then, as you press forward, you start actually attracting that into your life. Versus if you're just like, oh, I'm being avoidant again, then you're yeah. probably just going to keep being avoidant, and like maybe things won't attract to you. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I could just juxtapose against Dixon's first corporate experience. And um, I don't know if everybody has, I don't think everybody has as much pain as we have in this environment. I don't know if it's related to the Miller, like the downstream impacts of Miller's situation, but Dixon has, has also like struggled a lot with that corporate structure and just feeling trapped. And like, I don't know if I want to be here. And maybe part of it goes back to the root of like existential purpose when, when it feels like, you can die today for no reason. That's literally the experience we had with Miller is you're sitting on a couch reading a book with your girlfriend on a Sunday afternoon and then you're dead. Nothing caused it, nothing obvious caused that, you know, you're just yeah. dead. And that, I think that awareness uh, in us at that point of life or something started this cycle of like, why would I do this hard thing for that long with the promise of more better like in 10 years or however long, you know, if I work this corporate path for 10 years, then maybe I'll be able to have like a great financial life or something retirement at that point. But there's a part of us, maybe I'm kind of speaking for him as well, which is like, why would I work 10 years if I could die tomorrow? That doesn't yeah. make sense. I should actually just enjoy today. Like why delay my gratification? Uh, and so in his Delta experience, he actually went to work for Delta Airlines um, corporate as a revenue analyst forecaster. Um, he did that when I was in, when I was doing the Colorado and sailboat journey in South Africa and Iceland scuba diving, he was going through some of what I went through at Home Depot, like very similar. 
And he was on the opposite side of like, I'm not going to quit, even though I hate this. Like it feels terrible and I'm going to stick with it because I made a goal and I'm going to stick with it for two mm. years. That was just like an arbitrary timeline that I think kind of recommended in the working world, right? It's like, oh, if you have two years on your resume, then you're free to like go and be mm. free. Um, and so he, he stuck with it. And in his experience, he got to the point where he actually was able to make peace with that strong desire to leave. So instead of just listening to that escape mind that was like, ah, everything hurts and I want to get out, I'm just going to run out the door. He actually sat through it like way more than I did and got to a point where he ended up quitting Delta, which was always, it seemed like that was always going to be the outcome. But his experience of the quitting, I think, was more peaceful and more like self-affirmed mm. and confident because he made peace. Whereas I was just like, I hurt and I, I just want to end this and so I'm going to walk out the door. So I, th I think that you're right that um, it is an alignment. Like Home Depot Corporate is not who I am, I think. And I don't know if there's any amount of like self-talk or manipulation of my own psychology that could make me into a Home Depot corporate person. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe there is like some magical mental path where I could somehow convince myself that it's a fantastic yeah. environment and I love it and I'm excited. But it doesn't feel natural at all. It feels like what I want to do is be on that sailboat out in the middle of the ocean and like ripping on the waves, yeah. you know. Um, so I was just trying to relate back to it is an integrity, but I think there's something valuable about getting to that place of peace as well, making the decision instead of when I look back at that Home Depot experience, it's hard to say, you know, all of the other life experiences that led from that, you know, we can now spin that positively and be like, oh, okay, well, it worked yeah. out well. Um, but now what I know today, I probably would try harder to make peace with that situation before just running out the door. That's a good point. Cause then you could be reinforcing a bad habit of running out the door too soon. And then maybe you do that so much that you don't actually align with anything. Cause you're always just running out the door. So that makes a lot of sense. And then flip side is that maybe somebody actually doesn't have the courage to make the decision to run out the door and maybe they always wish they would run out the yeah. door, but they just won't do it right <laughs> there's always this little side side by side good bad dude um, that's that's the balance I, th I think that's the hardest thing of being a, a human is establishing balance because it's so easy to be all or nothing or like lean one side or the other i mean like i mean look at like american culture you know one side or the other so it's like i feel like it's fundamental to our psychology in a way and then I don't know, maybe on some evolutionary standpoint, I feel like just establishing balance and having the awareness to do that goes a really long way. And it also like reinforces harmony with other people too, um, just to bring other others together in balance. Yeah, balance seems like what we're all going for. And, um, you know, like the, the I think the Tao Ching, right? Or tai, Tao Ching? I don't know. Sometimes I get these phrases. I know what you're up, saying. That's <laughs> the, the yin yang, right? The line, like the middle path is the the balanced path and it's sort of like you have a foot in both it's not that you want to be all in the light or all in the dark and the way i've also heard it described is it's sort of like order and chaos i think jordan peterson talks about that balance between order and chaos where that little white dot in the dark side and the little black dot in the light side represent the potential for light within the darkness mm. or the potential for darkness within the light it's like you can be driving down the road in total order and peace and harmony on the light side, but then you maybe drive off the cliff and now it's total complete mm. chaos. That's like the little black dot that represents unknown. 
And I've also heard it described with um, sort of like healthy order and unhealthy order and healthy chaos and unhealthy chaos. And so I would kind of identify like my India trip as at that point in my life, it felt like healthy chaos where I was introducing unknown. It represented growth opportunity, potential to learn. Um, and it's really, it is kind of chaotic. You know, I don't really know where I'm going the next day, but then the order side of things would be like, Oh, I'm trying to accomplish a goal. And so I'm going to create a routine for myself. I'm going to train for this race mm -hmm. and I have a, a regiment every day. And that's healthy order. I would say towards that goal, but then there's like unhealthy order and the hardcore extreme of unhealthy order that I've heard is like a Nazi concentration camp. Yeah. That is hardcore extreme order is horrendous. And then, um, you know, unhealthy chaos would just be like the raging alcoholic parent that abuses the family situation. Yeah. So it's an interesting, like dynamic, how we frame all these things and yeah, what we take from them, I guess, there's like positive and negative lessons from everything it feels. And then is it even right to frame it as positive and negative is everything, everything just is maybe is sort of like part of the experience I have in ayahuasca, which we're getting yes. closer to. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we always, at least in my life, I was raised in a very binary structure of good and evil, light and dark. Uh, and that applied spiritually. It applied um, decision wise. You know, it's like, this is the right path. Um, and there's not a lot of gray. And that that's like where I opened up the gray was with India, I think, to actually finally be like, wait, I don't know if I want to live inside of this black and white binary box. I'm not sure that's what life actually is. It seems like there's people across the board who live all kinds of beliefs and all kinds of styles and approaches. And some are great and some are bad and it overlaps and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So I feel like we live very much in a world of gray, but our brains seem to try to make it binary because mm. maybe binary is just so much easier. It's like, well, which side are you on? Okay, done. That's not what it is. I don't think in my, in my experience. No, I, I completely agree. And I'm glad you touched on the differences of chaos and order. Um, so man, I, I want to get to the ayahuasca experience. Cause I want to ask, um, just your view on like, everything being random versus us making sense of it all versus it being relative to the individual and what unhealthy or healthy chaos looks like. Um, we're almost there. So I ran out the door of home Depot still avoiding. And all of this is related to seeking purpose. That's like one of the themes throughout all of this experience. And also through all of these years running physically is also still happening as like a physical expression of, um, it's an outlet for stress. It's an outlet for exploration. It's, um, achievement. It's pushing the limits. Um, so my distance was increasing over time. My speed was increasing. I was trying to run half marathons pretty fast. Um, like I got down to maybe, um, I think I ran an 81 minute wait, wait, half wait. marathon. What sport are you wanting to do? Um, so wait, how old are you at this point and what's your job and what sparked you to start doing more intensive running? Yeah. Well, I was kind of summarizing all of those years with running. Um, by the time I got to Home Depot in 2017, 2016, 17 was Home Depot. And uh, that was when I ran a really okay. fast marathon for the first time. So I got off the sailboat and I trained really hard for four weeks. I had not trained for 40 days on the sailboat. We had like walked around the deck was our training exercise. You know, I did push ups, pull ups and walk <laughs> wow. around the deck was how I exercised on the boat. And we like parked the boat in the ocean and swam because you can kind of like turn the rudder a certain way and tilt the sail or 
you know, sails and rudder, and then it parks you. And then you can actually hop out in the ocean, which is a crazy experience to swim over like 4,000 meters or however much of water below you just to look down there and be like, oh, it's crazy how much water there is. <laughs> in the middle of the ocean swimming right now. It's wild. <laughs> but somehow I got off the boat and was like, I'm just going to run a really fast marathon because I think I can. Wow. So I trained really hard for four weeks. I went from almost nothing to... Um, to just train, train, train. I would get in an ice bath after every workout because I was pushing myself really hard in my body. It was like way beyond Dang. what you should ever do to your body, I think. And I, I tried to say I would run six minute and 40 second miles for the entire marathon, which would get you to a Ooh. two hour and 54 minute marathon because I wanted to break three hours. Very goal. The only basis I had for thinking I could do that was that I had run a one hour, 21 minute half marathon. So I was like, okay, Wow. Maybe I can do a 254 marathon. Let's go. <laughs> and, uh, I think I had run one marathon before that, but not fast. It was like almost four hours maybe with Zach. And we were kind of just out to see what we could do. And uh, I also went into shock after that first marathon. Yeah, I bet. My body was not prepared. <laughs> like I was in the med tent. But I did that marathon. Zach rode his bike beside me. We did it in Atlanta. And uh, I was in sixth place for the whole marathon until mile twenty to like 20 or 21 i was on oh. pace for a two hour and 50 minute marathon through 20 miles and then i hit the most unbelievable oh. pain wall that i've ever experienced and it was just a total get to the finish line and you know zach's <laughs> on his bike and he's just like dude you gotta go man you're you're on track like you just gotta go and i'm like i can't do it <laughs> pain is incredible and I ended up three hour and zero oh. minutes in 33 second marathon. <laughs> the truth was that I probably actually exceeded my potential by, I don't know. So I probably was ready for like a three hour, 20 minute marathon. And I think I went hardcore and was like, I over exceeded my capacity by a lot. So on one hand, it was really amazing and impressive. And the other hand, it was oh. like, I missed it by 30 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> well, me a bit well wh day. why did you want to go so hardcore with it? Like, I don't know what that is. There's some, that's just some kind of genetic curiosity that um, it knows that there's some kind of cool threshold to push past the limit. And it looks at the marathon and says like, oh, a three hour marathon. That's like a pretty impressive accomplishment. Nice. Let's try to do that. Let's see if we can do it. Just curiosity, you know? So the cool thing was that uh, that time qualified me for the Boston Marathon. Um, the time cutoff for Boston changes every year, but that year it was three hours and five minutes cutoff for men in my bracket. And so nice. I got to do the Boston Let's Marathon. Let's go. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, if you can man. See it. Hell yeah. This qualifier. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, hell yeah. Um, super pumped. Family came up to watch it. That was at the end of Home Depot. And I was just trying to wrap all of this into the running is continuing to happen okay. in the background of all of these experiences and the Home Depot thing, the running out the door, the boat, the searching for purpose is all this like energy that's running towards something. It's like, what am I running towards? I'm not quite sure, but I can't stay still. It feels uh, like death sort of to stay mm. still. There's something that's uncomfortable inside of me if I'm still needs a goal. It needs a project. It needs a target. And so I ran out the door from Home Depot and um, 
I didn't know what to do at that point because I literally just quit my income and didn't have a plan. And so there was an immediate total drop of, it, it was like, yes, I'm free. Oh no. What have I done? <laughs> it's like you're building all this tension and then it's just like, oh, right down. <laughs> it felt amazing for like 30 minutes, maybe less. <laughs> and then in the room, it was like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that day really well, and um, and he does too. We laugh about it. Uh, so I I ended up converting my Toyota Corolla into a little camper car. I removed the back seats completely down to the steel frame of the car, and I built a flat um, wooden surface from the trunk up until the driver passenger seat. And that distance from the back of the driver uh -huh. passenger to the trunk is six feet, <laughs> and I'm six feet tall. So I could lay down and have my head at the driver's seat and feet touching the trunk. And that was my solution to having quit my job with no plan. Wow. Let's go. <laughs> so I moved into my car and I knew that I was really interested to live out West. I do love nature. I love the mountains. I love the ocean. And I'm not that inspired by the East Coast. Um, if anything, I'm inspired by like the hills of Tennessee and North Carolina and the forest and the rivers there. Mm -hmm. But it's not like that really big, awesome inspiration. When you're in big mountains and stuff, it's like, oh man, this is like, it's cool. And I was, uh, I have an Israeli friend who's a very big part of my life. I didn't mention his name is Gil. And uh, he and I are just very close, uh, close spirits, I would say, like similar paths in life and just really connected on the first day in India. After I woke up under that stairwell, I went to a cafe and I sat down with my little clean shirt and a button, you know, I had like a collar shirt on and, uh, Gil has been in the, um, he's been in the Himalayas already and he's been traveling for like six months by the time I got there because he was 23, he had left the Israeli defense force and just wanted to go like break out of his bubble. Wow. And he walked over to my table and was just like, Hey, can I, can I sit down and random stranger sat down and um he was like i think the first thing he said was man you look clean or you look fresh something like that as if he knew that i had just gotten off the <laughs> <laughs> and he's got this big like moses beard you know like he's been walking in the desert for four <laughs> nights and it's all dirty and <laughs> so he he like opened my door at that point to travel and what you could do because the first thing he said after we talked for a little bit he was like hey i'm gonna go check out the slums of mumbai do you want to come with me and I was like, what? you can go to the slums? What does that even mean? Like, are you going to die? Are people going to murder you? What happens there? He was like, no, man, it's just normal people. It's just like different economic conditions. Like, let's go check it <laughs> just out. Just the slums. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just the slums of Mumbai. <laughs> I was like, whoa. And so he, he opened my travel path. And to this day, we keep in very close contact. I'm actually uh, probably going to go see him in Israel right now because he's back there right now in music school. Oh, nice. And uh, I think he and I are going to go in the desert some and um, just like explore Jordan and see Petra is like ancient uh, rock monolith ruins and stuff. So um, I brought up Gil because uh, he, he met me in my camper Corolla and uh, he was in the United States at the time and we went rock climbing. We, he's into outdoor rock climbing. So we went to the desert basically because all the great prophets have gone to the desert for wisdom, right? Like when you don't know what you're doing with your life, go to the desert and don't eat any food. That's basically the idea. For 40 days. <laughs> <laughs> for 40 days. And as a part of my desert experience, this was right before I met up with Gil. Uh, I just randomly decided to do the Grand Canyon crossing, the rim to rim to rim, which is sort of like a well-known thing in the ultra community. 
And uh, I don't think I had ever done an ultra before that. The last race, the big race I'd run was Boston before that. And so kind of arbitrarily, randomly by myself, just was like, hey, I'm going to go try to do this thing. I texted my friends and told them what I was doing. And I packed up um, enough food that I thought I would need. I packed up clothing. So it was January and cold. And um, I kind of was like going out into nature to have some kind of spiritual experience with myself and completely isolate because you don't have cell service in the canyon. Um, the water taps are turned off on the North Rim in the wintertime. So you have to carry your own fluids. You have to purify water um, from the river, potentially, if you can't carry enough on your back. You um, don't really have like support from Park Service um, because, well, I didn't want to tell Park Service because they would probably deeply tell me not to. All the signs are like, don't try to go to the river and back. And I'm like, okay, I'll just go to the other side and back. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like the pictures that they have are, uh, you know, dude, like with sunburn and like vomiting because he's got sunstroke and uh. is like, don't try to do this. So I went and did it. And part of that experience was like testing the limits. That was my first ultra marathon. I did it completely for myself, but I did take a GoPro with me. Um, took a GoPro and just documented, which is a cool video. I could send that to you later if you want to see it's yeah. like a 14 minute video of the whole experience. And um, yeah, part of that, I think also was like offering myself up to nature sort of and being like, I'm going to put myself in sort of a dangerous position again. And if something really bad happens, I kind of feel like, okay, with my own mortality, like if I die on this mm. run, I think I'm okay with that. I feel like I've lived a good life. I feel pretty satisfied and I'm not, um, I'm not trying to end my experience here, you know, this human experience, but also I kind of feel like if it's time, I'm okay with that. That was like the beginning, I would say, of some of that mindset. Really? Like, so did it feel like it felt right in some sense? Like you felt kind of pulled to it or like it just, um, yeah, I don't know. I guess like a decision like that, it's like you feel like gravitated in that direction. So you're like, I'm going to put myself through this and I'm not like trying to logically reason it, but it feels right type of thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, part of it was also that I was living in my Corolla and the Rockies are too cold. Like I would wake up in Colorado with my water frozen beside my head inside my car. Oh my gosh. That was not a fun experience. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was also thinking I have to go south right now if I'm going to be living in my car. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I heard about this race called the Rim to Rim. I think I'll go try that. And um, yeah, so again, just like continuing to push that physical running limit but also some kind of like spiritual journey looking for something, some kind of inner connection or outer connection. I would say by that point, that was the beginning of 2018 now. And um, still, I think the experience of like a connection with God or a higher power at that point was very low um, mm -hmm. since eight years of declining from Miller. And so I came out of the desert after that run experience with Gil. We were sitting out um, after a rock climb and we said, let's go get a milkshake, like a little bit of comfort food. We went to McDonald's and I saw Falcon Heavy launch. That's like the SpaceX heavy lift launch vehicle. It has three boosters and two of them come off and land autonomously back on land, which is just insane that we have rockets that can land now. Insane. Not everybody knows how incredible that is. Like Star Wars. Um, but that completely blew my mind and the excitement that I saw, it was like February 6th of 2018, uh, blew my mind apart. And I was like, oh my gosh, I want to go be a part of this excitement. Like we're going to Mars and we're going to travel the galaxy and human <laughs> exploration. It's like, 
it's like sailing across the ocean except in space yeah like the human spirit wants to explore now we're going nice and so i immediately applied and within i think a day i got an email back that was like hey can you be in texas for an inter or uh, yeah they were in texas they said can you be in texas for an interview in a week or two i was like yes i'll be there and i told gil like we're leaving we're not rock climbing anymore i gotta go to texas oh <laughs> and so went got the job with spacex and wow that was another like strong feeling like uh the home depot decision was fantastic you know it was like i went down this hole of feeling like complete waste of um like quitting and everything walking out the door and then this great new experience comes and now it's like wow spacex wow. who would have thought <laughs> that is just insane that like that like polar difference there is wild <laughs> Like what? Desert rock climbing and running across the Grand Canyon to working for Elon Musk, who at that time I think was a little less polarizing than he is today. I think he was a little more like up on a pedestal in 2018 as far as like the uh, great scientific inventor guy. Yeah. Now he's like the whole Twitter thing. There's like so much angst and so much stuff going on with Elon Musk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyways, worked for Elon, worked for SpaceX and... um I was really trying hard to identify with a mission beyond myself, like to find the purpose. Um, and I thought that might be it. I thought like, maybe I've finally found this professional situation that feels aligned and I'm contributing to something I care about. And it was really cool. It was cool to be a part of that. It feels like kind of an elite squad at SpaceX of like high achievers. When you get in there, everybody knows that they're really good at what they do. And because they're so good at what they do, a lot of people don't have, I would say, don't have like a great balance in other parts of life. I was working with people who spend 12 mm. to 16 hours a day, every day, working on rockets. Wow. And that's their life. They're like hardcore type A, high achiever. Uh, and that's fantastic. But for me, I need more balance. I wanted to go for runs after work and like break away and go see nature and stuff. And it was hard to come by the community that I wanted in that regard. So I, I burn out from SpaceX. It took about 14 months again. I made it past the year mark. I wanted to quit a lot sooner. Really? I keep a journal. And when I, um, yeah, I mean, when I look back at the journals from those times within, within two or three months of my experience at SpaceX, I was writing things like, I don't know if I can do this that maybe this is a terrible decision, you know, but like ego and, and image are keeping me there sort yeah. of like, Oh, well I'm here. Like I got to keep up my, you know, can't just quit now. So. Yeah. Cause on the surface, it looks like really impressive. Like you should be like having the opportunity of a lifetime, so to speak. But, um, I guess when you have a CEO like Elon Musk, whose life is very imbalanced, then he's going to expect the same out of his workforce, uh, to be imbalanced. So that total obsession is down to everybody. And then it's actually like a point of pride to work that much. So the people that are working 16 hours a day, hold it as a badge of honor. Sort mm. of. Then there's like a shame complex. That's like, Oh, well I'm not doing enough. And people don't think I'm like good enough or hard and hard worker enough. Mm. And um, yeah, so it became like a very toxic environment for me, the pressure, the stress. Um, there were a couple of things that happened that detached me from any kind of human connection there. There were layoffs that were kind of like unexpected layoffs. 10% of the workforce on a Friday afternoon wiped out. Nobody knew it was coming. Uh, and at that point I got kept. And I remember being like, oh, damn it. <laughs> I wish they had let me. <laughs> yeah. Um, really, really quick, by the way, um, what position like was it? And like, do you know why um, 
I don't know, I guess why they brought you on, like what stuck out in the interview process or anything? Well, I think that uh, excitement goes a long ways in an interview process and passion. And when they interviewed me at the beginning, I was so excited. There was like a rocket test going on outside the building when I was in my interview on site. And the building's literally shaking with the vibration of a rocket engine outside. You know, my eyes are huge and I'm asking them, is that is that a rocket engine? You know, and they're just like, yeah, it happens every day. Wow. And it's like, oh, it's insane. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Damn, that's cool. Um, so I think that they picked up on like a skill set that I already had. You know, I was I was decent with um, what they needed me for was material planning and supply chain stuff, which is some of what I've been doing at Home Depot. So I was doing data analytics, like some Excel stuff, um, material movement, um, like some some financial budgeting type stuff, they would say, we need to save money in this area. What can we do? How can we p- plan our material strategy acquisition better, more efficiently type stuff? And um, so, did you enjoy the did you enjoy the work, or was it just since it was so overbearing, it kind of deviated from you actually enjoying the the process of what you were doing? Yeah. Um, uh, the work itself, the actual task of the work, I don't think excited me. The thing that excited me was walking around the hangar, looking at the rocket mm, or um, listening to the rocket launch outside or just do tests outside, you know, and, and the whole idea of like, wow, we're achieving a new horizon. But the actual task of I mean, my hours were 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. most days and sometimes longer. Um, so I was up at like 530 in my apartment every morning, driving a half an hour out into the Texas fields because it's like an old bomb factory from World War II. That they converted to the rocket test facility. Oh. And then I sat in a hangar with no windows for eight hours a day, more or less, at a computer. And, you know, you have some meetings here and there, but it... Um, it's like it pretty quickly uh, was not what I wanted to do for fun. Mm. Like the weekend very quickly became a haven of like, oh, let me just let me just get back to Friday or Saturday and Sunday so I can like have a moment to myself and like sit in nature and mm. go for a run or something. Um, so it was like definitely a suffering experience um, for the sake of like image, um, for the sake of pride, for the resume, for like for just being told like this is an incredible opportunity by outside observers who are like this is awesome for you and it's like is it awesome i don't know if it's awesome it feels terrible sometimes yeah, right um, wow dude this is just such a good testimony by the way because there's so much like because you're like going in these like surface level directions of what like is expected to bring you know some type of meaning day to day but then like understanding that it's just not identifying with you yeah and then part of my fun my fun experience of being at spacex was going someplace that was not spacex and wearing my spacex jacket and then having people be like whoa you work for spacex it's like yeah i do i hate it but it's great (laughs) yeah um and and it's like stockholm syndrome i still think about going back to spacex one day if the opportunity ever arises um I've thought about maybe like if I was in a different department, maybe I could like it more. If I was in like the space operations area where you deal with actual customers and instead of moving rocket parts around, Mm. you actually talk to clients about like they have the payload. Here's the details. How are we going to get this to orbit? Let's talk about space. Let's, you know, 
so I've, I've still thought about like, maybe there is still something there that I could tap into, but, um, haven't gone back quite yet. So, uh, just to wrap SpaceX, I quit after 14 months, which was like a lot longer than I actually wanted to make it. So that was even more painful than Home Depot, I think. And I went into it again, hoping for something, hoping again to find something outside myself, just like the boat, just like Home Depot, just like, um, SpaceX went into it and was like, maybe this is what I'm looking for. I'm still running, still looking for something. Mm. And all of these experiences are still looking outside of myself primarily, right? Mm. It's like looking for status, looking for esteem, um, something outside and left SpaceX. Um, this time I took the first life raft that I could find, which was that a friend from Home Depot was now working at Coke in Atlanta, Coca-Cola corporate. And said, why don't you come work for Coca-Cola? It's uh, it's more remote work. You can work from home sometimes. It's better pay. It's less stress. And uh, it's just it seems like a better situation than what you're dealing with at SpaceX. And so I was like, yes, get me out of here, please. And I didn't want to quit from my experience with Home Depot. I was like, I am not quitting a job again without a plan. So give me that life raft. I don't care what it is. I'm taking it. And jumped into Coca-Cola immediately after SpaceX. I moved back to Atlanta. And within six months, I couldn't do it. Really? I quit Coca-Cola. Um, I I thought like, okay, I can achieve my goals. I'll be near my family again. I'll just make it work. It will be better than SpaceX. Six months later, I was staring at my ceiling every night, um, wondering what I was doing with my life and just feeling very depressed, like depressive episodes where everything seemed dark and shadowy and you know, just like very dark thoughts, very hard thoughts of what am I doing with life? Nothing makes sense. I don't know what I want in life. Mm. I don't know why I'm here. Um, just kind of getting darker and darker um, to the point that I recognize like I can't make this work at Coca-Cola and my well-being, my own mind is worth more than any amount of money they can pay me. At that point, I was making six figures at Coca-Cola as a product owner and making six figures felt fantastic. Uh, and the paycheck, like when I saw my bank account every two weeks, you know, with a paycheck that was like, that is way more money than I need. Yeah. Uh, cause I'm more or less, we haven't really talked about it, but more or less through all of these experiences, I have mostly still been living like a backpacker. Um, I haven't really ever increased my, um, expensive living or my lifestyle so much, you know, like I kept my 2006 Toyota Corolla until, I was making six figures at Coke. And then the only reason I sold my car at Coke was because I wanted to get a van to move into a van to continue kind of living a mobile, like lower cost lifestyle. So um, that's just like a background um, piece is kind of like that financial piece. Um, are you are you investing in passive income streams this whole time? Yeah, yeah. And that's like a big concept too. That's a part of this... Um, this kind of mental challenge with going back to make a bunch of money because I learned about passive income when I was at Home Depot. The concept that if you have enough invested in certain asset classes, it can generate you all the money you need to live. And then you basically don't have to commit your time to something that maybe you don't feel super compelled to do. And that became like a little carrot, you know, yeah. that was like, oh my gosh, if I just have a certain amount, which, um, you know, just if anybody is like unfamiliar, um, the fire movement online, you can check it out, like financial independence, retire early. Uh, Mr. Money Mustache is the guy who introduced me to it. And there's a bunch of people that write about this subject, but 
The concept is basically if you know the amount of money you need to live per year, for example, then multiply that by 25. And that's the amount you need invested in passive index funds where you just sit on dividend income that your stocks earn for you. So if you want to live on, say, $20,000 a year, you need 500,000 in passive index stocks. If you want to live on 40,000, you need a million, 80,000, 2 million. And so some of those numbers became like a easy, I mean, not easy, but like a uh, achievable target mm. in my mind. It was like, okay, well, let's do the math. If I make a certain amount of money, then if I just save this amount and Mr. Money Mustache is like a super big proponent of saving as much as you can, because who wants to work till they're 65 at a corporate job? Yeah. Most people don't, maybe some people do, but um, he retired in like 10 years by saving 60% of his income. 60% of your take-home pay will get you to your current cost of living in 10 years. Like no matter what your current cost is, if you can save 60% of your current take-home pay, you will be financially independent with index passive investing in wow. 10 years, roughly. He has like a whole mathematical breakdown where you can look at the numbers. And so I thought, okay, 10 years, let's go. I can do this. 10 years is not that bad, you know? If I could have like used my college experience to put myself four or five years closer towards that financial goal, then sure, like I already did college for no income. You know? <laughs> and so that like kept me, it, it started this like push and pull between um, like I see a life where financial independence could be a really cool way to exist. Uh, but then also what's the cost? Like how much of yourself do you have to give up to get to that? And I think some people get really fortunate that they make a bunch of money and love their situation as they're doing it. Mostly love it. My experience making a ton of money has correlated one-to-one -one with pain. As my income increases, my pain increases. Exactly correlated. Very interesting. <laughs> and so I'm still looking for the balance between income and contentment or peace in life. And all of that wraps into like my own mindset and you know, looking outside for some kind of different situation every time. Like the theme we've talked about so far is me jumping there, jumping here, jumping relationship, jumping state, jumping job, jumping country. And that's all getting really close now to some of the plant medicine where we're at. I left Coke um, well, after six months. Before we get into that, I want to say it's very interesting how you're jumping t across these extreme experiences, but you have like this stable financial reflection plan of your lifestyle and passive income streams as well. So I'm not sure if maybe that leads um, to the plant stuff also, but obviously like your finances are a reflection of just your lifestyle and your personality and such. So it's interesting that that's kind of like a grounding, um, you know, passive income value there. And uh, I think that the, the running strategy still applies in um, that philosophy applies in financial investing. I see the index passive route as a marathon. It's mm. like a long, slow path. It doesn't get you a million dollars next month. It uh, gets you a million dollars in 10 or 20 years. And it's like a long, slow kind of steady. You know, if you stick with it, it's just like ultra running. Stick with it. And you put in the work, you'll get there. I think I fall back on that with finances sort of as like, okay, relax. Like we don't have to make a million dollars overnight. And a million dollars overnight is not going to solve some of the existential angst that I feel throughout all these experiences. Like it's very clear that my material wealth has increased tenfold since those, that first experience in India, when I was running around India, mm. I have much more material wealth than I had at point in my life. And I am still experiencing many of the same existential quandary, can't escape my own mind stuff that has nothing to do with 
um, the money situation. The money is just like a little stressor on the side that I think is easy to complain about sometimes to be like, well, if I just had that, then yeah. things would be different. And that's not the case at all, which was where I got to at the end of Coke was like, okay, you're paying me a ton of money. And uh, I just, my happiness is going down dramatically. I just can't do it. And I, that time I cut the cord with no plan again and was like, my plan now is to build a van and try to make a sustainable life moving into something that I care about, like photography, some kind of nice. uh, conservation field. Maybe I'll go back to school, like still deeply trying to figure out what it is that I'm running from, what I'm trying to run towards. And then, you know, we got into COVID um, period of time. Uh, I quit January 1st from Coke to 2020. And the re part of the reason I did that was because we had a profit sharing thing that happened on December 31st. So my manager literally said, why don't you just wait like four more weeks and get your profit sharing <laughs> Nice. and on the resume. Now I can put 2019 to 2020. Ah, nice. What a hero. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of just six months from like, you know, July 1st to January 1st and call it on the resume. It says 2019 to 2020, which really gets you on job applications when they have like a month drop down bar sleuthing, you know, trying to make it still appear. You still want to appear good <laughs> in some way. Yeah. So yeah, then, then, uh, COVID stuff happened and, um, we don't have to go too deep into that, but my experience with COVID was, um, my dad's health was declining. He's older and, uh, he, fell and broke a hip at the beginning of COVID, like literally March first or second week of March, 2020, right as COVID was starting up. And uh, we walked through a long process. I moved back home to Atlanta to be around family to help my mom support because he dropped into dementia. And we walked through like that mental uh, battle sort of, he just passed last April, which was another one of those, you know, pretty intense death experiences. Um, it was a long, slow, that one was like even more painful in a different way because uh, the nature of dementia is that their mind, you know, the person that you've known falls apart basically and they change. They don't always remember who you are. It gets more and more serious, you know, as like eventually they don't remember your name, that type of situation. And that's just really painful as a caretaker. So it's, it's really hard on all the people um, around that person, which is also interesting because his experience, I think, got even less stressful as his mind eased out of this world, sort of. It was like he actually became even more lighthearted at the end where uh, he was in a facility, you know, for um, assisted living, like a um, mental care facility. And uh, he's he's in there surrounded by people whose minds cannot function appropriately. They have to have people feed them, have to have people bathe them. Most of the people are pretty old, you know, it's like mostly yeah. 75, 80 plus, um, which is also just a really tough thing to be around uh, for like us, for young, healthy people to walk in there and see that like this could be my path is a thought that I've had observing some of that, you know, Yeah. and um, that I'm bringing that, I think, just to say that it plays in some to some of the resistance against our experience, like some of the resistance at mortality, some of the futility of like, what are we doing and why are we doing it if this is how it's going to end? Like, I don't really want to live in a facility where I have to be spoon fed uh, yogurt at the end of the day, you know, and, yeah. but interesting, I think that my dad's um, experience got more gentle 
And he was like a very loving, soft hearted person before that. But it, it even like came out more at the end where you could just walk in a room and look at him and he would burst into a big smile. You know, uh, he might not even know your name, but he just you and be like, ah, oh. wow. <laughs> like, it's so good to see you. It was like it became more like a baby. You know, it's like you uh, start as this little infant and you go up into middle. And it's like he returned back, back to where you started. Infant. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's just like, that's another part of this mortality experience. Um, it was very impactful, um, to my mindset, you know, like I went into some very depressive experiences around that, um, because I think part of it continued to involve this cycle of not really getting in touch with what it is that I actually want somehow. Um, I don't exactly always have like a clear compass. That's part of why I go out and explore and take a ticket to India because I don't know exactly what I want. So let's just go look at it, you know, that type of stuff. Um, but so being around that situation, my dad was like, I just, this is so painful watching him deteriorate. And at some point it's like, you want to rip the bandaid, you know, uh, and then you feel like frustration in this long, slow experience. And it's unknown. It's like, how's he doing today? Okay. Well, he's like a little up today. Okay. Next day. How's he doing? Oh, well, he's really down today. And we just don't know. We don't know how much time is left. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, and you ride this like emotional wave of this person, like it's more or less like a, a low, a step down and down and down with some like little up, like you have local maximums, right. And then like a minimum mm -hmm. and a little local maximum again and keep going. Um, like you see him smile and that's so a maximum I, uh, type of thing. And then it goes down when you get, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah, exactly. You can have moments, definitely moments of like, oh man, it's really nice to feel like I still felt some love from my dad, like fatherly love, you know? Um, but then there's other moments where you step outside and you just ball your eyes out because you're thinking, man, this is so painful. Um, and uh, yeah, during that time I got my pilot's license because I'd always wanted to fly airplanes. So that was just kind of like a cool, um, that was, that was like another trying to set some kind of um, framework to operate within to, uh, to like achieve something, you know, it's like, here's my little box. Um, piloting has rules. If you learn all the rules and you put your time in and do the work, it's sort of like a marathon and you'll get there. And, um, I tried to put that box in a place as like a coping mechanism, I think to be like on the side of watching my father die slowly, if I can just be working on something, like have a goal to look forward to then I can keep moving and have this like progress mindset and it just still couldn't do it. Like it, having an exterior goal like that could not um, help me with the in, in the inside pain, you know, partly because there's like just intense resistance to oh. the experience itself. There's, it's like, I, I don't want to do this. I don't want my dad to die. I don't want it to go slowly. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, you know, all these feelings and the resisting itself is I'm recognizing is like such that is the suffering experience is the complete resistance, uh -huh. you know? Cause you're, um, running from something instead of towards something still, are you kind of realizing this as it's happening? Yeah, God. I think so. I would say that I with piloting, for example, I was trying to feel like I was running towards something because that's, I think that's like a good feeling to feel like progress and you're looking ahead and there's hope, there's optimism, but it was also trying to run away from mm. that painful experience. It's hard to sit with that. It's hard to sit there and just be with those emotions and to not run away from it. Um, well, it's also like, in, and so, yeah. He, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Okay. I was Go just going to say, it's so interesting because it seems like 
it seems like death keeps getting like involved in your life and then it like pulls you back to running from something all over again it's just like it's like fuck you know like what is this, why is this such a common theme in your life kind of thing like uh and yeah. and also um but yeah definitely yeah or i was gonna say with your dad too like it seems like just the nature of dementia also it's like yet again you're not getting that um that full goodbye again it's like that having to accept exactly. at their level yeah. type of thing and it's crazy how like consistent this is <laughs> like it's wild yeah the theme of not being able to fully close it in a two-directional way like a mutual experience of closing it it feel that feels um like recurring <laughs> you know yeah i didn't feel like i got to close it with miller didn't skip didn't close it with my dad except um you know you you don't really know what a dementia patient like you don't know how they're processing it you know so i was there uh when my dad passed i was in the room uh, my mom and i were the only ones there because it was in the middle of the night and so she and i are kind of sleeping on the chairs on either side of his bed and she and i are kind of taking turns like napping a little bit holding his hand but we kind of know that it's like coming you know it, at the very end of life you can just there's like an energy about it where you know that it's the end sort of and so he was unresponsive mostly but his body's still kind of breathing like he's still alive but you know it's like okay He's not really coming back. He's done. And so she and I are taking turns, taking a nap beside him. And um, I think I was just about to fall back asleep. And she's like, Colin, I think it's happening. And uh, I came over and we both just kind of like held his hand and put our ears close to him and kind of like listened to that last little like. <gasps> and then it's gone, oh. you know, and then it's like the last breath and it's over. And uh, that, you know, I walked outside and just kind of I, I walked him walked in his body like to the a van comes and like takes the body away because he was going to be cremated and so you like walk with the body you know and it's uh that's like a weird weird experience this person that brought you into the world and now it's like this is the end wow and uh you know you say goodbye like we were talking about closing but it is weird that you know he never said goodbye like and i don't think he really suffered like i don't think he suffered thinking about his own death so I, it's like nice to consider that I don't think he suffered. Um, but yeah, that just to say that um, like another mortality experience, all of these things are still sort of like, sort of like a pool building, you know, of these experiences that's yeah. like continuing to fuel the, uh, the like, what are we doing? What, what am I doing? What's the point here? We're just like, our point, I heard one uh, idea that like our purpose is to help the people that came before us get out. <laughs> and, and it's like this cycle, you know, of like being helped through the process. And there's a guy, uh, Ram Das, uh, if you've ever heard that name, he's kind of, um, I don't even know what word to describe. He's kind of like a teacher, I guess, sort of like he's in the plant world, I guess, uh -huh. as a teacher, you know, maybe he was like 60s might be getting dates and stuff wrong, but he's just a really well-renowned voice of wisdom. And uh, I think he, his quote was that we're all just walking each other home, sort of. Interesting. And I think that's like a really powerful concept. Yeah. Like, it's kind of a cool idea just to let that sink in. What, what, what exactly does that, like, could you uh, extrapolate on that? Like that idea? just uh we're all walking each other home to me kind of means 
and this is where I could talk about some of the plant stuff now. Um, okay. Is walking each other home to me kind of means like we maybe all are just physical expressions coming off of the same energetic source sort of. And this is where it might start. It starts to get a little like hippy dippy or whatever you want to call it. Hey, I'm all about it. man. <laughs> like a little far out. Well, no, I'm glad. Cause I actually like naturally, I always think in a very abstract way and that's how I tie a lot of meetings. So yeah, I'm, I'm all about it. And I like uh, thinking of it in terms of energy and such as well. So yeah. Yeah. Like at the root, it's, it's sort of amazing to me that we all act like everything's not completely mind blowing every single day. You know, we've all adapted to this kind of conscious physical experience, but it is shocking. Like consciousness yeah. is shocking. <laughs> Dude, it's insane. <laughs> we're just rolling with it. <laughs> yeah, we're just rolling with it. And like, uh, it feels like the majority of humans out there having an experience in the world. It, I, I don't meet that many who are kind of constantly like existentially quandering their way, you know, through life. But I feel very uh, struck by the absurdity of consciousness and the fact we're here and how are we here and nobody actually knows how it started whether you are in the religious structure that thinks god created everything in the beginning or whether you're the uh, scientific side who says well all we can uh, extrapolate back to is the big bang which effectively is the same language to describe god created the heavens and the earth right? yeah same concept different language uh, <laughs> exactly. Like, in my experience, it is crazy. It's fascinating. It's mystical. And uh, it's, I, I'm not at this point thinking that I can ever fully wrap my mind around it. But um, this is where I'll just talk a little bit more about like the plant stuff that I started. So uh, I went, I had heard about ayahuasca in Peru probably around my time at SpaceX because I was podcasting a lot on my driving. And Tim Ferriss, I think, was the first guy. He's got a really cool podcast. I like him. All kinds of like high performers. Yeah. And so maybe my next goal after this podcast is to get on Tim Ferriss. <laughs> oh, that'd be awesome. Um, so I uh, I had heard about ayahuasca and just got I was like more and more curious over time, and I was recognizing, especially through my depressive episodes around my dad's passing, I was having some very dark moments with myself and. Uh, dark moments to being like, I don't want to be here anymore. Mm -hmm. um, like the idea of death in my mind, potentially, we don't know what it is. Like there maybe is heaven, there maybe is hell, there maybe is nothing. Uh, I don't have a conscious memory of anything before I was born physically, you know, so maybe my soul, you know, there's this idea that like, we have past lives. Um, maybe there's experience from before our physical existence. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the case. What I know today is I don't remember anything consciously from before that. So it seems to also make sense to me that there is a potential that when I die physically, there's also nothing to my conscious experience afterwards. If that's the case, void actually starts to sound like kind of appealing when what you're experiencing here is nothing but pain. Yeah. Uh, and that's what hell to me seems like is just a constant experience of pain that's how it is described i think right it's like you're in this endless cycle that seems to be the hell loop mm. it's like it's endless whatever it is it's maybe fire and brimstone with satan or it's also just like uh hell on earth is a phrase that we use right because you're in a constant cycle of pain sometimes mm. and so i was in that spiral around like the time that my dad was going downhill of just like, man, it is getting worse and worse and I can't live like this. Like I've got to do something. And I, at this point, I don't know how to do it myself. On top of that, I'm also feeling like I can't really talk to my friends 
much more about this because um, it's really hurting them too. It's hurting our relationships. Bringing them down. Um, because they can't really fix me, you know? And well, my friend feels really bad. Cullen's like not wanting to be here anymore, but I can't do anything about it. All I can say is like, I love you. I support you. You know, here's some like helpful tools, but like you got to do something. And, um, you know, it's like an even more isolating experience when you're feeling that. And then you're like, well, I can't even talk to anybody about it because it hurts them. Yeah. And if anybody has ever like had some of this, um, I feel you, uh, with some of this like downward negative depressive spiral is getting to the point where thinking of ending it yourself is not even like, you're not doing it because you don't want to hurt other people. And that is like, it's, it's like a crazy thought to think I kind of want to end my life and now I'm not going to do it because I don't even have the internal like motivation to do it for myself. It's like, um, wow. it's like a misplaced personal alignment decision where then you feel guilty because it's like, well, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to hurt other people, but wow, I only want to do it because I'm trying to end my suffering. So I'm just going to continue absorbing suffering and just sit here and hate everything. I'm just like hating that I can't end it hating that it hurts, hating that I don't know how to fix it, hating that I can't talk to people about it. Just like a very negative, unhealthy cycle downwards. And uh, yeah, and also feeling like kind of ashamed because I'm not brave enough to do it, you know, so to speak. Um, but I also got to a point in my experience of feeling like, okay, I think that the uh, the the biggest maybe external reason that I would not do this feels like my parents. It feels like that would truly just be a like very um, unhealthy, painful experience for parents to have to walk through that. And so I, I kind of felt inside myself, you know, some people say like, well, I'm not going to do it because of my friends. And it's like, okay, I guess, I guess friends like is a good reason too. And I love my friends, but like parents is a different level, I feel. And so I kind of like part of how I buoyed myself up to be like, okay, Colin, you got to get out of the cycle. Like you can't do this. You just can't do this while your parents are on this earth. You know, like mom is yeah. walking through the death of her husband dying you cannot just quit your experience while these people need your help and like trying to lean into helping somebody else i think helps out of that spiral a little bit it's being like okay i am needed somebody else dad needs me to help him through this experience for himself but also during all of those really dark moments feeling like i have got to change my mind like this internal mental experience is just wreaking havoc on me and um and also I would say it's just, you know, interesting because my life on the outside is very well provided for, you know, like I, I haven't ever really gone hungry in my life. I've um, never truly been on the street, even though I have chosen to sleep on the street at moments or put myself in a situation where it seemed like I might need to. It's not the case that I actually need to. Um, just to say that if you look at a life on the outside, it seems like the pieces are in place. I got an education. I had parents. I had a family that loved me. Um, you know, many, many good, great, wonderful things of life. I've had sports opportunities and uh, cool travel experiences. And so it's like amazing to me that a mind, my mind in this case, can actually wrap itself down such a vortex when a lot of the external circumstances for a happy or content or well taken care of life are totally present. Um, yeah. And so it's like, Mm -hmm. Or I was going to say, yeah, like aside from the death you've experienced inside of your life, what do you think is like causing this? I don't know. Do you feel like it's a form of self-sabotage for your life to where you just keep spiraling yourself downwards and then you just keep attracting more of that? Like what is, I don't know, like what's in, 
I mean, I guess the death um, that you've experienced is like, would make sense, but maybe it goes further than that. It's a, it's definitely a piece of it. Like the death experience is a very painful um, part. And I think the anticipation of death, you know, mm. like uh, that quote that <laughs> nobody gets out of life alive. <laughs> nobody, nobody I've actually never heard that. <laughs> Nobody gets out alive. And, um, <laughs> it's, it's really just how and when. And there is this unknown variable of the quality of life that you lead. How does it affect whatever experience you have on the backside? And everybody has this concept, I think, of, well, I would prefer heaven. If the option is heaven or hell, I'm going with heaven. And so how do I get to heaven? And we have these convenient books that other humans have crafted over the time that may be divinely... Uh, written by some kind of spirit above, you know, like the Bible, to my understanding, was written by men, but uh, spoken by God. And Paul wrote the books in the New Testament, but um, that was a message straight from God is what I've learned in the church in my experience. And maybe that's true, um, but maybe it's not. I also question how much of the human um, experience around those kind of religious concepts has been warped by human ego and power dynamics and fear is deeply used in the religious structure to manipulate the behavior of participants so fear is probably our strongest emotion right i think fear is what really drives true like the deepest action comes out of fear i think and fear will drive people to do insane things if you're scared enough, you'll probably kill somebody for your own life. Like that, I know that that is an experience that happens, right? Like an animal backed into a corner goes insane. If it's fearing for its life, it will just like eat its way through you to get out of the corner or something. Um, so I, maybe I, I shouldn't say too much on it right now, but I can just say maybe like going into my own plant experience is um, well, going uh, into ayahuasca. But before yeah, that point, ahead. I was going to say it is interesting because, and maybe we're getting to this with the ayahuasca experience, but I do like um, thinking in terms of a higher power and living alongside like a higher path, not in a hierarchical way. I think that's where people go wrong and what turns a lot of people away from specific religions too. It's because the people aren't doing that. They're getting their egos involved. They're having wars with each other over nuances that they shouldn't. It's like, what place are you coming from that you're arguing over these nuances and trying to like impose your beliefs on people? It's like the way you frame and like communicate a message goes a long way. And if you're doing that in a wrong way, you're showing a lot of like where you're actually coming from. And it's probably not that higher place that's like intended. So yeah, I just, what, I just had that thought when you were totally. explaining that. Yeah. There's a lot of very interesting and sometimes unknowable thoughts i think in this space right like if there if there was a lot of knowable facts in this space we wouldn't all still be talking about it and we wouldn't have so many different yeah. belief structures so it feels to me like in the context of the fact we're still talking about it in the year 2023 and there exists however many religions and belief systems across the world to this day it's like okay it seems like part of the path here is figuring out what is aligned inside of myself. And there's an infinite number of outside sources who will tell you their way is the way. So the ayahuasca journey for me, I think represented finally really trying to go deep 
into myself to understand a connection of some kind, like an energetic connection to something bigger. And maybe people can access that big energetic connection through the church structure, you know, Sunday school, youth service, um, praising with a Chris Tomlin chorus, you know, when everybody's rocking out and there's smoke on the stage and he's closing his eyes and having this spiritual experience. And you see people in the audience with their hands up. It's like, praise Jesus. That does it. And maybe that's the real, maybe that does it for them. And maybe that's totally authentic. But for me, for some reason, I never felt like that actually deeply resonated inside of my experience. It felt very performative yeah it felt like um i was trying to feel what those people look like they are feeling and you know then on the outside trying to like promote the image to other people that i am experiencing it i'm experiencing it right like you guys see it uh i can say this great prayer and it sounds good and now you guys think that i'm totally holy and connected to God. And yeah. inside, it's like, I don't know if I'm connected to God at all. <laughs> uh, sometimes it feels like I'm talking to a brick wall. Actually, a lot of the time, it feels like I'm talking to nothing. And um, people talk about like prayers being answered, you know, and for years, I've questioned like, is your prayer being answered in like an auditory way? Or like, how do you know it? How do you feel it? What does it mean to have a prayer answered? Is that, um, is that answered prayer actually something coming from outside of you that changed the course of something, you know, because yeah, we all sat with the youth pastor and the whole community in Miller's hospital room and everybody said, we got to pray. Let's pray for healing and pray for, you know, life. And then he died. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, there's like, that's um, a big unanswered prayer situation right there that um is, is like then then the christians in that context turn the story and they say well you know we're like called to pray and this is what we think we want but god works everything together for good and so even though we're praying for miller to live god actually knows that it's the best thing for him to die and now we get to walk through this hard emotional experience of living the physical reality of your friend and your son and your brother dying and um it, it quite i question a lot I have a lot of questions and the ayahuasca experience for me, I think started to actually tap into some of these answers. So I can tell you about the, the journey with ayahuasca. Yeah. I would love to hear that because it's like, I can relate. Cause you know, like whenever we go through struggles in life, it's easy to be like, okay, this is just some challenge to grow from and you can grow from a lot of things, but it's like death is like the kicker where you're just like, why the fuck do I have to grow from this? And like, what, like, why is it this form yeah. of growth that I have to experience? Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd yeah. love to hear uh, the ayahuasca experience. Yeah. It's, um, it's something big, I think, to become very aware of our own mortality. I think that's a big difference in my experience from pre-Miller to post-Miller is I had 21 years of life where I don't think mortality was really a very real or present idea in my mind. It wasn't like part of my awareness at all. I was just playing soccer, having fun with my friends, going to the swimming pool, you know, and then you do some school stuff, you study, you work a little bit. And then now all of a sudden, whoa, it's like, okay, death is a thing. What do we do with the time that is given to us? Well, what feels good? I don't know. What, what is valuable? Like what do other people need? There's like a bunch of different ways to spend to spend that story, right? Of how you decide what to do with your time. And um, 
I'm just at a complete loss. Like by the, by the point that I have had now like 12 years of awareness of the mortality cycle with kind of wrestling with that feeling of like, when do I die? How do I die? What happens when I die? Does my after death experience depend on what I do here? Is there some uh, mission that I need to tap into? That's the reason I'm here for. Like some power has put me here for a reason and that's what I need to do. Those are the questions I've been wrestling with for 12 years, but feeling very disconnected from in the church. And so I went into the ayahuasca experience being told that this is kind of, this is connecting to God. That's how the experience was framed to me is that these plants and in the case of ayahuasca, it, I don't know all the details. I'm still learning a ton, so I'm no expert here, but um, from some of what I've gathered, it seems ayahuasca is one of the most intense psychedelic plant experiences that you can have. And uh, it's a, it's a vine that grows in the jungle that has DMT, the chemical substance DMT in it. Uh, And somehow the Peruvians, some hundreds or thousands of years ago, figured out that if you mix the ayahuasca vine with another plant in the jungle, that um, the DMT experience, which normally is like a very fast process in the brain, DMT goes in and out in like 15 minutes or around that. You can actually extend that whole experience with the mixture of the two plants because there's some inhibitor and another vine. So the ayahuasca experience is like a DMT experience, but extended over multiple hours. And the ceremonies that we were sitting in was um, usually like three to four hours, I would say, of fairly intense psychedelic experience. And then, you know, the whole experience is like six hours from when you kind of like start a meditation, take the medicine, wait for the medicine, have the experience, and then like a come down at the end of the night. And um, they talk about it with, they call it mother ayahuasca as if it's an entity, sort of. It's like a mother spirit that mm. is a teaching spirit. And um, it feels a little bit related to like the earth mother spirit. Um, so they talk about Pachamama, earth, and then the great spirit above. So there's like these three spirits that were being discussed some in that space where, you know, we're opening a ceremony with a prayer to Pachamama earth who sort of like, we are earth, you know, like our physical form here is more or less like we become dust again. And then we have mother ayahuasca and we have the great spirit and you can maybe use different words for those things. I heard words like source. I heard God. I heard universe, you know, universal energy. I think all of those terms that we're using are sort of referencing the same concept that I've heard about my whole life in the Christian church when we talk about God. Um, so my first experience, I did four ceremonies of ayahuasca plus a few other, there were some other, um, it was a retreat. So it was like a one week retreat and you go down there. I had never met the people that were down there, but I really connected to the facilitator, um, whose name is, uh, Michael because of his personal story in his life years ago, he was getting to a point as well where he wanted to end it. He didn't want to keep doing this, was thinking seriously about suicide. And he I forgot how he found out about ayahuasca, but his story is that he went to his friends and family and said, I'm going to say goodbye now. I love you all. I'm going to do this experience in Peru. And if this plant is able to help my life and help me be peaceful and enjoy life or appreciate or whatever, feel connected, then I will dedicate my life to facilitating that experience to other people. And if it doesn't help my life, I'm going to end it. 
Wow. So he literally said goodbye to everybody and down there. And now all these years later, he's helping me with this experience as a facilitator. Nice. So I, I connected to him through just a friend and was like, wow, this is a deep, um, pretty cool, deep connection to me that there's like a person who's gone through some of these really hard thoughts like me and found found something that really connected him and keeps him here. And he feels now that he's like doing good service and helping other people. And all of it is like, you know, it's much better than thinking like, I just don't even want to be here. So that that's um, the facilitator context of like how I kind of got into that space. But otherwise the other participants there, um, I had never met them, other guys kind of like me, but you know, everybody's got their own story. Um, but there's people that go down to that space with substance abuse problems, you know, addicts of any kind of stuff, behavior that people are just like, I need help to change my mind somehow. I got to change my behavior. I don't know how to do it. I need help. And to me, it felt very much like going to church sort of in terms of like going to a um, holy place sort of to reflect in a deeper way and try to connect to something. And um, with people too. So we, we entered the first with with people like with with other people i guess that's what a church yeah. is is gathering with people and yes, you know exactly connecting with the higher power yeah it's a communion of other people connecting and uh so i did four ceremonies i went into the first one not knowing what i was going to get at all i was just like okay let's do this no fear maybe a little fear but not fear of a known maybe fear of an unknown, right? In my first ceremony, I took one cup of ayahuasca and I remember that it didn't taste so bad to me at that point, but that was before the purging. <laughs> and so I took the cup and um, it tastes like earth. It tastes like you're drinking dirt and leaves and vines. You're drinking the jungle literally into your body. And it's kind of this like, what did I just, whoa, okay, that feels a little weird. And you feel in your <laughs> stomach, like it's kind of hot sensation down there and like, okay, now there's something in me where do we go from here? And through the course of that first uh, ceremony, um, you, you don't really, in my experience, you don't really self-direct all of your thoughts consciously. It's sort of like you sign up for a journey and you just go see what's on the journey. And so what showed up for me was a lot of family stuff. And I felt more love and empathy and compassion in that experience for myself and for my family and for other friends or past experiences than I've ever felt in my whole life. It was like, wow. I just got juiced up with positivity and love and goodness and was like, wow, this is amazing. I, I was like cycling through some old experiences all the way back to birth. I actually had an experience of um, sort of like physically curled up in a fetal ball and my body is moving in different ways. I'm getting, like tremors and my nervous oh, wow. system is shaking a little bit and you're like, I don't know what's happening. And I had the distinct sensation of actually reliving my experience in the physical womb as a baby. It was like, is this what I think, I think I'm reliving like some of my experience. Wow. And that turned into going through other life experiences from early childhood. And I re it's like my mind played back some experiences from life, but in a, very compassionate empathetic way and so there were times like when i had an experience with my dad and maybe i was frustrated from my side of that experience as it happened and in this ayahuasca mental space as i'm on this journey i was replaying those but i was like able to completely understand from his side how wow. much love he still felt through like a hard experience that i was frustrated about 
and it honestly felt like uh the they call it the medicine you know they call it it i guess it's a drug but drug is like such a charged word when you say drug people get really triggered you know it's like drug is kind of well so they call it medicine when you take this stuff and it felt like the medicine was helping me to actually reframe some of these things in my mind in a loving way that felt very positive, felt very wow. good. And I was like, wow, I feel I was crying tears of happiness and like, wow, I love my dad so much, even though some of those memories were previously frustrating. Now I'm feeling amazing love. Ah, uh, that's beautiful. Yeah. And I felt that with some other family members and just felt like I felt like overwhelming love was my experience, which was a fantastic feeling to have, you know? Um, yeah. Not only that, but it, for me, I, I have spent so much time in my analytical mind, like my cognitive thinking mind, trying to figure out why are we here? What are we doing? And then break it down in very literal terms. And that space in ayahuasca, I think, really started to tap me back into what it means to actually just feel and to feel it without having to put words around the whole experience. Like fit like faith in some way. Like what? I get like I don't know. I guess that could be like faith in some yep. way. Just not trying to break it down intellectually, but just focusing on feeling it and just being a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. As I went through these ayahuasca experiences, I found a lot of parallels between the teaching in the church and what I was experiencing in the ayahuasca space. So, you know, there's like the concepts of surrender and trust and faith that you're talking about. All of those are exactly the same in this space. It's like a release and a surrender. And then it's wow. like a teach me or show me, you know, like I'm inviting something in whatever it is. I can't understand it. It's a plant in the jungle with some chemical that does something to my brain. All of a sudden it's like showing me new thoughts in different ways. And what I've learned on the physiological side or the neurological is that part of these uh, um, psychedelic substances are actually inhibiting like the, uh, I don't know the brain, it might be like the neocortex or some kind of frontal thing, which is like the conductor in your brain. You have some piece of your brain, which might be the cortex, but a fact check me. Um, and that conductor piece is uh, sort of like orchestrating all the other parts of your brain, right? And in these psychedelic experiences, part of what's happening is that conductor is being silenced a little bit or a lot. And now you have people having an experience where they're actually visualizing a musical experience instead of like hearing sound because you're actually connecting different neural pathways that are not normally connected. Wow. Uh, when you mute that conductor piece of the brain. So there's literally new neural pathways being connected in these experiences that are not um, always accessible. I've heard people say that you can access some of these experiences through uh, like breathwork meditation, you know, like deep, deep breathwork type stuff over time and that you can train your brain to actually make some of these connections and these experiences. I haven't gone that deep into breathwork. Um, but I just had, from the first ceremony, I had like a very um, warm, loving experience in that and felt like, wow, this is healing. It felt very healing. And um, I went into the second experience uh, with like optimism and then challenge came. <laughs> so the um, it, it was like the medicine uh, sort of introduced me very gently to the experience. And the way that the people in that space started talking about these experiences to me is they say things like the medicine gives you exactly what you need. The medicine provides mother ayahuasca opens you to what you need. 
which is the same concept in the Bible as God being, it's like uh, all things work together for good. You know, God, God knows the best for you. These are similar concepts of like, you just relax and trust and you'll get something from beyond is the concept. And uh, one of the next, in the second and third ceremonies, I went into a lot of challenge, personal challenge with um, unexpressed pain, I think from my past that I have stuffed it felt like there's an entire lake of unexpressed emotion with a dam that I've built up. And that dam I think is a protective mechanism because feeling pain actually hurts a lot. And so maybe we compartmentalize, you know, and then it's like, all this is in there somewhere and you carry it with you in various ways. You know, I think it expresses in various ways with people. Like I can see how certain illnesses would arise in you if you carry some of these things unexpressed it's sort of like carrying toxins with you maybe if if you actually what you need is to process and get out some of these things mm. and you just carry it with you carry the stress the anxiety negativity whatever uh and so i had one of the most i mean i think the most overwhelming shocking uh mental experiences of my life in my third ceremony where I went to a complete other dimension. I was no longer involved with my body. The last thing I remember in my body is feeling, uh, let me just back up a second. There's a shaman right in the room, a Peruvian shaman who's been doing these things for his entire life. This shaman probably started when he was a teenager. He's now like 50 something. He was taught by his dad, who was taught by the grandpa, who's taught generations of knowledge that have passed through these guys, which is crazy to think about that these guys, it's like wow. you are receiving generations of human knowledge right now as this guy chants in Quechua language, um, which is in Peru. And so I can't understand it. He's, he's at the front of my bed in the deepest part of this ceremony. He goes around to each person's bed and there's six people in the room. So he finally comes around to me and I was already in some kind of psychedelic stupor, you know, like not sure where I am. I'm in another space, but you can kind of come back. I heard him. Um, he was kind of like making a little noise at the foot of my bed, almost to kind of be like, like entering my space, you know? And so I'm, I'm aware that there's like a presence near my, the foot of my bed. And I come back a little bit. I'm able to sit up and he starts chanting. They call it an Ikaro, which is a specific chant that he does in his language. And uh, before the ceremony, you have sat with him and the facilitators. And he's asked you some questions through an interpreter. That's like, why are you here? What are you looking for? What's your experience? These types of things. What's your intention? Intention is like a big concept within this space is like, intention matters a lot. And so he's sitting at the foot of awesome. my bed, starting to chant this Ikaro. And I can remember physically my body kind of uncontrollably starting to uh, like move back and forth in circles. And his chanting is very rhythmic. He's also physically moving. He's like in a, I think he's in a squatted position or um, sitting just cross-legged. And he's, it's totally dark in the room at this point. The concept of these ceremonies is sort of like, we are going into the literal darkness to also dive into our own inner shadows to go do this work and like explore what's happening in there to help heal it, to reframe it, to experience it, to let it go, to release it, surrender. And then at the end of the ceremony, we're coming back, entering the light. And so I'm in the darkness. I feel my body just moving around. It's like the sound of him is the tone of it is like, <laughs> you know, it's like moving and you pushing energy. I feel like I'm literally wow. on a rope 
like being pulled back and forth. Like there's energy chanting and pulling me around and uh, very intense and overwhelming. And wow. like, I can sense that my body is doing this, but my brain is also feels like it's in a completely other dimension of sounds and colors and shapes that I've never seen before. And it's just completely disarming. Like I, I'm so at this point in my internal experience, it is complete chaos, like mind blowing chaos. It's the closest thing I could imagine to what a psychotic wow. breakdown feels like where your brain is just everything inside your brain is just like, what? like screaming. <laughs> and I didn't know I was physically screaming, but everybody in the room later when we reflected, they were telling me about how much I was screaming physically. Oh outwardly. my gosh. And at that point, now the body is actually starting to purge, which is part of the ayahuasca experience often, almost, I think almost always. And so I'm reaching for a bucket, but I, I have no physical awareness at that point, whatever. I just remember vaguely there's a concept of a bucket and I'm trying to come back into this physical space and uh, I reach for a bucket, but completely miss. So I start vomiting all over myself. I hit the guy next to me reaching for the bucket. You know, like there's, it's just like a complete disaster, like a mess of a person. I'm, I'm a puddle of, you know, uselessness is how I feel. Of, I'm out of control. I'm just like, what is going on? I don't know if this Useless. is helping anything, wow. complete chaos. I don't know what to do. And Michael came over in the darkness and uh, like, it was like a voice from out of the, you know, it's like God's voice coming down to me. And he was like, Cullen, listen to me. <laughs> and I remember just grabbing his arm as like, you are my lifeline. Like, I just do whatever you tell me, please just help me. I, I am so lost, covered in vomit and feeling terrible, you know, and um, <laughs> he was like, stop talking, wow. Cullen. And of course, my brain is just like, okay, I'll stop talking. <laughs> and we, we had this running joke after that experience. That's like, stop talking. Like, you're still talking. Cullen, you're, you're still talking. Stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, he, he and another person came and lifted me out of the space because uh, it was such, they, they had to take me out of space because it was so overwhelming for everybody, including the other people having their own experiences. Really? Yeah. And I, I, I could hardly even use my legs. You know, everything is just like a total blur. It's totally disorienting. I remember just um, like being carried out and laid on the earth. And I remember just feeling my face on the cold earth because it, it was like, uh, it's pretty high altitude. Like PSAC is maybe 10,000 feet or something. So it's pretty cold. You need a jacket in the summertime, even like in June. And uh, I felt the cold earth on my face and was just like gasping physically for life. And my breath was just like, <gasps> like I'm just gasping for air, trying to live again in this physical safe space that we're familiar with because <laughs> my brain is totally wrecked. And, and anyways, I came back from that experience. They finally were like, do you think you can go back in at some point? You know, and I was like, yeah, I think I can maybe go back on a bed, like lay me down. and. I don't remember much after that. I think I just kind of collapsed in a bed for maybe an hour while the other people like finished their ceremony. And so at the end of the night, in this context of like a, a little community of people doing this, um, we all have like a reflection moment. And the ceremony that Michael has down there, he only has six people max because they want to sort of like focus on people. There are ayahuasca ceremonies you can go to where you have like 20, 30, 50 people. Yeah. And I just think that would be like so hard with that much energy swirling around. And also like, I, I anyways, 
maybe I'm, I shouldn't judge it, but um, six people felt very intimate and it felt like we were all very connected and very involved in each other's experience. So as I was coming out of my experience, we're relighting candles and kind of like inviting the light back into this experience that like what just happened? I still don't even know what just happened. I'm still to this day, like, what was that? Why is there a plant in the jungle that can cause that experience? Uh, but as I'm processing it, I'm breaking down in tears and shame and guilt and grief because I lost control of myself to such a point that I was ashamed of it. And I felt sorry. I felt like I had ruined everybody else's experience. I felt like, um, like a pain to them. I, I just felt like intense sadness and shame. And I was apologizing and like, guys, I'm so sorry. This is just awful that I did this. And um, all of them were just very um, confident in expressing nothing but love to me. And also affirming me that in their experience, they all saw and heard, not so much seen because it's all dark, but they understood that I was going through some intense kind of purge of some kind, like something is hitting Cullen right now in a very intense, chaotic way. They all knew that, they felt it, affected their experience, but it all worked together. And at the end of the night, they were saying things like, man, your experience of that intensity let me release some of my guard to go deeper into my own experience and people were all like spinning positively and one of the guys that helped carry wow. me back in from outside he basically kind of came out of his experience to help me back into the room and he um, as he was laying me down onto my new mat and like tucking me in i'm not I'm, I'm useless at this point he's literally doing everything he's like putting my head on the pillow putting the blanket on me um in his experience, he has had a ton of like physical abuse, trauma, terrible stuff in the family uh, to the point that he had internalized the message that maybe he can't ever be a good father himself. And that was like a very limiting belief in his life. He's, I think he's like early thirties, maybe late thirties, but as he was laying me down on that mat in that context, and he's also with the medicine, he had like a transformative moment of experiencing that he can be like a supportive father figure and take care of somebody rewiring some of his own uh -huh. internal limiting beliefs to the point that he in his reflections that night he was like i'm having a transformative moment right here i'm feeling like something's changing and i kind of feel like i want to go home and talk to my wife about trying to have a kid and uh to this day now he's i don't think they're pregnant yet but they're wow. trying and they're like convinced and they're you know it's like something transformed in him for the positive and help him progress uh. forward based on my chaos that i felt sorry for and felt ashamed for and he was like brother it was all part of the experience like everything happened wow. just the way it needed to happen and all of that even aside from like the, the actual psychedelic experience of the ayahuasca that whole picture is part of the healing that happens in that context is what I've gathered. It's like the whole picture is part of the healing, not just you having some weird little psychedelic trip in your mind. It's like, wow, there's actually physical things that are happening in the world that are, while our mind is doing that, we are also changing something in the physical world, you know, to like come back to real, to real life out of that. Cause I don't think anybody wants to live in a psychedelic experience 
at all hours of the day. But I was just seeing some incredible transformation happening in that space. And also what felt to me like actually connecting to a God or a source energy. And I think my suspicion is that what I connected to in that space, what I started to feel for myself is I think what the Christian church wants me to feel. And maybe some people do feel it in the church, feel that complete connection to a source God thing. I just, maybe it wasn't the right packaging or messaging in the church, you know? Yeah. And yeah, very intense, very overwhelming. Um, I'm still processing it. That was like seven months ago, maybe. So thinking about going back um, to continue because it just feels like, it feels like such an amazing uh, space that you can have those experiences. Um, it feels shocking to me that that is even an available opportunity in the human experience, that this is a naturally occurring plant and you can go eat this plant or the yeah. brew. It's like a liquid and, uh, and like connect to God. And that is deeply concerning to me. <laughs> That, the, that there there exists this plant that grows naturally and it's like what <laughs> it's like why is this a part of life how is this a part of life <laughs> why is this a part of life exactly like worth exploring more at the least this goes back to my kid exploration mind you know that's like wait a minute hang on what is that <laughs> and yeah so this was the second session or was this the full um were you explaining like all sessions that was the third ceremony um at this moment the second ceremony is a little bit less clear to me the third ceremony was the complete chaos the second ceremony i think was sort of like starting to enter into challenge of processing unexpressed emotions which was lots of tears lots of pain lots of grief um it's like tears that didn't get cried is how i felt in the second ceremony and and now crying them and just like an overwhelming amount of emotion processing out, which is what that bucket represents is not just your lunch coming out, but actually energetic purging and releasing of some very intense things from life that you've stored away. And so after that third ceremony, um, a couple of, a couple of amazing things happened to me uh, in that space, a couple events that are just still completely shocking to me. Um, one event was that Matt, who carried me back in and had the transformative experience with his own internal story about fatherhood. I mean, just the fact that, that some switch flipped on that was pretty um, interesting, right? Like the fact that you can you can feel that and not just analyze it. Like we're talking about chills, deep, deep feeling here. You know, it's like I felt amazed at how little I think I've actually felt in my life compared to how much I have thought. I think I might be feeling, you know, there's like some difference between wow. even observing your own emotional experience versus actually feeling the thing. And uh, I've just lived like a lot of my life in a cognitive space of looking at it, not even feeling it. So this was like an overwhelming experience for me to feel it inside wow. my body. And it's like, whoa, I continually during this experience, my, my whole expression was like, whoa. And the guys were laughing at me because there was like one night when I was talking, going into my psychedelic space. And a lot of these words, I don't even remember saying, but they were hearing me. And my expression was like, what? No way. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> that was the energy. <laughs> <coming out of laughs> me. Whoa. 
whoa, dude, what? Um, <laughs> and that energy is like amazed, you know, it's like, it's like positive amazement. It's, it's amazement at our human experience. It's amazement at whatever this energy is. It's amazement at God. It's whatever this, this is. Um, but another thing, a couple things, Matt has had, um, like he had a traumatic back injury, I think at some point in the past, maybe like five to seven years ago, I think he broke his neck and had to have some kind of metal, uh, wiring frame, you know, put in there to support to where he can't, he doesn't have full mobility in his neck. And he has literally had persistent pain for five to seven years of his life. And he's been on painkillers, you know, all these kind of, um, like reactive, worst. reactive, um, medicines sort of, or pills, and he broke down in tears. I think it was after the first ceremony. He broke down in tears one day because he said for the first time, he's not feeling pain in five to seven years. And he forgot what it feels like to not feel pain. And it was incredible watching this person express that emotion and being like, why, what just happened? Like you, you took this plant from the jungle and now you don't feel pain. How does that work? That's incredible. Can we all just take a second and acknowledge the amazing aspect? Of <laughs> Appreciate that. that. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Um, I also saw just, I saw him forgiving the people that had caused the pain in his life. He actually had like aggressors, you know, that caught, that failed him, that abused him, that treated him poorly. Mm. Um, that's kind of a different story than I have because I think nobody in my life was actively trying to hurt me his life had people actually hurting him, which is like a very tough thing to live with, especially when it's somebody that should be loving you like a father figure. And I watched him like sob his way emotionally forgive this person and say, thank you for the pain in my life because it has made me into the strong person that I am today. And to see somebody wow. actually um, like legitimately feeling forgiveness in that way and and channeling it into gratitude for the struggle was like a very wow. powerful experience to me because going back to that idea of resisting the struggle uh that's where the suffering comes from is all this resistance inside of me that doesn't want to feel the pain and so to see him able to transform that feeling into like wow okay I can live with this. I am still a functional good human. I can forgive them. I feel thankful that they did these things to me because now I have an experience to share with the world and I'm growing and I'm, you know, that was another like very formative uh, experience, which I would say was definitely facilitated by that medicine. Maybe you can also completely do that with your own cognitive mind or, you know, through meditation, through breath work, through self-discipline, maybe there's other ways as well. Um, but it felt like a very strong uh, doorway to walk through with that medicine and that context for that healing. And if we have that kind of a doorway with that access to walk through, I'm just like all for it, you know, like to me, yeah. like this is used in the right context with the right intention. This feels like an incredibly powerful tool that I never was introduced to until a podcast by Tim Ferriss randomly when I was 30 years old. And instead, what I feel like I was introduced to in my life was like this structure that really involves like a lot of fear, like in the, you know, in the religious structure, it feels like there's a lot of guilt about doing the wrong thing and fear about ending up in hell. 
and I need to behave this certain way because I want to get to the target of heaven. And, you know, there's also like a lot of talk of love and grace and like you're saved, you're a sinner, but you're saved by grace through the death of Jesus, that type of thing, you know, but it does feel like there's still like a lot of fear wrapped into it. And in this ayahuasca space for me, all of a sudden I felt nothing but love and gratitude and compassion. And there was not pressure. There was not a, um, there was not a figure nice. forcing anything down my throat. I showed up there with a request to try and learn and be like, I'm here. I heard there might be some wisdom here. I'm trying to open myself up to any wisdom. Can you help me access something? And the message that I got from the facilitators was here is the medicine we're presenting to you. We are holding a safe space for you. Um, we don't know what'll happen. This is your experience. Good luck. And that was like a wow. very different um, setting, I would say, than being told, like talked down to in some of the like religious philosophical structure that I've been in, where it's like, here's a guy who is interpreting the message for you. And he's like, here's the message. Take it, you know, versus like the, facil wow. the facilitators down there are like, there might be a message here. Why don't you see if you find anything? <laughs> well, man, it's like what's beautiful about this is it's like providing an environment where you have the freedom and like embracement from others to let your guard down fully to like this, like the highest degree possible. And then you're just at your most vulnerable moment, but then you're just reassured with like love around yeah. the experience you're in. Yeah. And then, I mean, that makes so much sense why that would actually like click for you in your mind to like have some sustainable takeaway from that. Um, totally. I mean, it wow, was, man, that's awesome. It's a, it has been a transformative experience for me, which I still do not fully comprehend. I don't know if I ever will fully comprehend it. Um, and part of the message I received there from other people in that space and from facilitators was you don't have to wrap all of these experiences into language. You don't have to explain them. You don't have to rationalize all of them. You can just absorb this experience and trust. You can recognize that you just had some kind of mystical, weird thing that doesn't exactly make sense. And maybe that's okay. Maybe it's like making sense on a level that you can't compute. Maybe my brain is actually wiring new neural pathways that will affect my life in some way wow. that I don't even understand yet. And maybe I start to see life a little bit differently without even realizing that a switch got flipped. Um, so Wow. That's so ego dissolving too. Because it's like... You don't have to make sense of everything. Just like ego dissolve and feel it, be a part of it. That's yeah, nice. Yeah, I have some chills right now thinking about it um, because all of a sudden- I'm getting those, chills too. <laughs> some of those kind of uh, far out messages of, you know, like we're all one and we're all love and it gets, gets this kind of bad rap sometimes. Like I feel like the, the word hippie is sometimes looked down upon and people kind of degrade the hippie culture sometimes. But I started to really feel that of this connectedness of my ego body, something dissolved, like Cullen was gone. And I was just like a pure spirit experiencing some great connected energy. I felt totally plugged into something I didn't even know could be experienced. And when I came out of that, I was like, 
what did I just access? That is a part of our experience. Like, I don't know if that was all in my own brain. Did I just leave my brain and go into something else? Is my brain actually like sending off waves to connect to something that's outside myself? It's a very, wow. very shocking experience to me. Um, and there is fear with it too, I would say. After that third experience of complete chaos, I, um, I felt so overwhelmed and just unable to rationalize what I had just felt and experienced that, um, well, part of that experience, I honestly felt like I was in a literal other dimension of very real reality that has nothing to do with this physical world, but potentially the entities that I encountered there and the energy I was feeling and what was going on in that space was active and alive. And I even had a thought of like, is this a space that is actually constructing the physical reality that I exist in? Is this like an underlying layer of, mm. I'm just like a slice in these many layers of, um, you know, Oh, wow. Matt suggested that in one of his experience, he walked through nine distinct different dimensions of reality. And I just don't even know, Wow. you know, like the fact you can have that sensation, what does that mean? Um, and maybe it's not even worth stressing much about whether that means anything or not. Maybe it's worth just being like, wow, that's crazy. And that's the whole point is just to be like amazed and mystical. Yeah. And like, wow, now we can go back to our um, daily lives and do stuff here. Just the other couple of like intense experiences from the ayahuasca space was after the third ceremony with that chaos, I took a break. I went on a little motorcycle trip with a couple of friends. We drove around the country just exploring, like drove to Machu Picchu and stuff. And we were in this valley at one moment, me and my buddy, Greg, um, there's like a huge mountain up the valley covered in snow. I think it's like a 20,000 foot mountain. So it's a very high peak in the Andes. And uh, he and I are just sitting there. We're all alone in this valley. There's like llamas and alpacas or whatever down by the river. And we're sitting out there. We've been out in the valley like all day, you know, just hanging out, watching, checking out the world. And for some reason, I felt well let me let me preface real quick in my christian journey i've always just asked god for like a big clear flashing billboard sign to be like i am god believe so i could be like oh yeah that's very clear there's like a there's a burning pillar of fire in the sky i can definitely believe there's god and i always felt like i never really got that clear sign it was always so vague and i felt bad sometimes in my life was like i've prayed for signs maybe there are signs that i'm misinterpreting am i doing something wrong am i not plugged in is god even real all of these spiraling doubts um and so the thought of a burning bush has been like a prevalent concept in my experience of like god if you're real just show me and then i'll believe just why is it so hard just show me mm. and, and some people i know are like he shows you every day because you're alive and the wonder of life you know what i'm just like that's not good enough. I need a burning bush. <laughs> <laughs> and so on the hill in Peru, I sat there and for some reason I had this impulse to stand up. I, well, I first put my hand on the earth and I said, Pachamama. And then I stood up and I held my hands to the sky and I said, great spirit and mother ayahuasca, let's have an avalanche. And I held my hand out, held my hand out, looking at the mountain and just stared at it, just held my hand out. And then I was like, okay. It was worth a try. And I sat back down by Greg and probably like, <laughs> probably like 10 seconds, maybe, maybe 20 seconds passed. And then we heard a rumble and we both look over our shoulders. And we're like, Oh dude, what? It's no. like massive avalanche coming down the side of this mountain in the distance. 
and he and I are just by ourselves out here screaming. You're just like, what is this? This is insane, you know? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and for me, that was like, I okay, I believe like that's a burning bush. I get it. I did it. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I believe. Thank you. I got it. <laughs> Um, wow, yeah, that is insane. You know, Link, because I was like, Greg, phone. He pulled out, his, like, started filming. You know, uh, and and to me, that was just like a shocking, very shocking experience in light of the context of me in that ayahuasca space. And like, why did I have that impulse? I've never looked at a mountain and said, "Let's have an avalanche" in my life. Why did I say it then? Why did it happen 15 seconds before an actual avalanche happened? Did I cause it? Did I like, did the avalanche cause me? Did, did like I tap into some universal connected that was like, I am the mountain and I am going to have an avalanche. <laughs> <laughs> like I have no idea what happened. Maybe it was a complete irony and there's literally nothing spiritual happening here. I guess that's an option. But in the context of my interpretation in that space where I'm seeking, I'm looking for something, I'm looking for a sign. And it's like, oh, dude, what? <laughs> well, it's cool too, because there you are like trying to make sense of it, but then it like comes full circle and it's like, no, I make sense of it. It happened. Be a part of it. <laughs> like it's there. Yeah. I told the facilitator when I got back to the town, I told him and all everybody else and everybody's like, what? That's insane. And Michael told me the other day, he's still <laughs> the story of like i summoned an avalanche you know with the spirit <laughs> um so that was just another reinforcing thing for me that was like okay maybe there is a god energy I, I feel like pretty confident now after all of this experience that there is a god i think that we are all talking about the same thing whether you want to call it god the father and jesus christ whether you call it um allah or any other religion out there i feel in my being after this experience that we are talking about the same universal thing. I think we are all little threads. We're all like physical expressions coming off that thread. And when we say things like love wow. is the answer, we're all connected. We're all one. I think there is like deep energetic meaning to that outside of the kind of like, Oh, whatever. It's just weird hippy dippy stuff. I think there's something like deeply, um, deeply, rooted in that i guess like a good takeaway is instead of getting caught in the nuances or everything just like lead with embracing letting guards down reinforcing with love openness and that can just go a really long way totally yeah i felt just so different in this space surrounded by support and love and empathy and there wasn't any sense of like if you don't do this you're gonna go to hell and hell is bad don't do that it was just like here's wisdom and now we're connected and the answer is love. That was the experience I had. Um, nice. So there's all that, just I'll, I'll wrap it up and uh, just maybe drop like a little, a little bomb here from something I learned down there that gets the mind spinning. The last crazy okay. thing that I saw down there um, is just that there was actually like a demon exorcism. That was an experience that happened in that space those are the words that were used to describe it where person is overwhelmed with some kind of energy inside them that they feel they are not in control of they exit the um, ceremony space carried by other people person is writhing uncontrollably on the ground um, people are holding that person's limbs to stay steady shaman is there like chanting like trying to push something out of this person it's like we need to exp expel something wow. Um, calling other people from the village for support. Like we need Michael, get Michael up here. We need facilitators, something intense is going on here. Person like screaming, writhing, like can't breathe, says something's choking at her neck. Um, 
and shaman's like pushing from the feet like energetically you know chanting like working his way up the body and like eventually something comes out through this person not visible but something energetic changes person comes back to their senses is like what was that what what are you guys like what is going on you know and it's like okay something intensely energetic and not clear to us in this physical world just happened to this person and it's very interesting just the parallels between all those experiences i just mentioned and what i've heard in the christian church you know there was like physical healing that's unexplainable jesus walked around and cured the blind healed the sick um there's like unexplainable miracles avalanche comes off the side of the mountain unexpectedly burning bush um and then there's like this light dark thing happening with energetic purging and demon exorcisms where i've also heard about demon exorcism in the christian church except it's a pastor with a cross saying satan be gone so i'm looking at all these experiences saying this is literally the exact same thing happening as what we are describing in the bible and in other religious texts wow okay so that's like a big takeaway for me it's just feeling like i'm pretty confident we are all talking about the same thing oh my just with gosh. different language <laughs> And that brings me a lot of peace to finally reach that point after these many years we've been talking about the journey and the running and seeking. And to me, that is like finally a doorway into peace at this existence of some kind to be like, I am love, I am light, I am here, I am some piece of a bigger thing. And just another intense experience was we did this um, five MEO DMT, which is like the um, it's the mucus off the back of a frog in the jungle, which is scraped off the back, vaporized or at first it crystallizes, then you vaporize it and smoke it into your body. And that is like the intense DMT experience that sometimes people talk about that like launches you into mm. another world. Uh, I. I got launched immediately into my dad's own death experience, going back to that room that I was in with him, where the the energy I was channeling in the, at that point was living his experience with him and basically dying his physical death with him, feeling very much like I am him and he is me. We are like in my experience in that space, I am laying down, I'm in another dimension, I'm with my dad. And we are rocketing straight into this bliss, light, overwhelming, like, pure love, perfect situation, which is what they wow. talk about with the heaven concept. And um, that was like incredibly healing to me. It was incredibly unexplainable, the sensation that I had, but it also just gave me like um, incredible peace, I would say, like healing after all of this pain that I've been feeling. And um, it even made death, like we've talked about the challenge of this mortality complex and like the resistance energy and just the pain and like, I want, I don't want to do it. I, I don't want to be here and all that stuff. And this experience for me, the ayahuasca, the DMT started to actually open a door, I think, to reaching a state of non-resistance, which feels like really the big message here oh. is that trust, faith, peace situation where no longer are you seeing these bad things as things to avoid. It's just like everything is. That was like some message that I got through ayahuasca was like, I'm puking in a bucket and it's physically uncomfortable, but I am purging the bad or the negative stuff, the toxins that need to come out. And I'm saying, thank you. I'm saying, thank you for my pain. Like Matt was saying with his abuser was, um, thank you for the suffering. Like if you can make peace with the suffering, which is also like a concept in ultra running, the founder of Leadville 100 race, which we didn't really talk about, but he made, I think he is the one who said, make pain, make peace with pain and you'll never be alone. Make friends with pain and you'll never be alone. 
And that concept yeah. applies directly from ultra running 100 miles through the mountains of Colorado to the ayahuasca experience, to the mortality, to the jobs, to like, okay, we are having this human experience and emotions are neither good nor bad. They are just sensations of our experience. And uh, I think that's what I can say about all of that is like, it has opened a door for me. I feel interested to go back soon. I am thinking about going back. Maybe we should report back sometime after the next cycle of events because it does feel like i'm launching into a new chapter of life um, hell yeah and the last thing if i could just drop a bomb before we sign off yes is, uh, <laughs> i was introduced to this concept in peru which it feeds straight into the narrative of that space right so i recognize that there's like a bias everywhere no matter what bubble you're in you can fall into like a narrative of that bubble and then be like well this is the way I'm not trying to say this is yeah. definitely the way. I'm just trying to voice that this is something that resonated with me. Um, I heard the concept that potentially Jesus, the concept of Jesus as the figurehead, I, I think he was a real person from everything I've gathered. It seems like this historical evidence that supports even outside the Bible that Jesus was a real person that walked around on earth. But the concept that his, um, his representation, philosophically, metaphorically speaking, is what the mushroom the sacred mushroom and the psychedelic experience, this plant connection to the divine that is represented by Jesus in the Christian story. This is all just pure conjecture in my opinion right now. I don't know facts from fiction here, but it resonates with me. Yeah. So the concept Jesus in the Christian story is sort of like this connection piece to God, the father, the great spirit that we're talking about. Whereas in my space in Peru, mother ayahuasca, the plant, the jungle nature is the connection piece to the great spirit. And um, it's just very interesting to me that potentially, I think there is evidence that there's possibly early psychedelia practice in the early religions, like in the early centuries, um, around the time that religions are being created or whatever. Um, there's thoughts that maybe the communion cup was actually full of some kind of psychedelic liquid and people were con connecting with God just the way I did in that room in Peru. And the thought that... Um, Basically, like the church stepped in with, you know, like the the figurehead, the bishops, the, the arch, whatever, pope kind of concept, human power dynamics, ego stepped into the equation. They said, wow, God is this really amazing universal concept. We kind of want to control it. Why don't you guys come through us? We are going to interpret for you. We are going to outlaw these psychedelic substances, which is fascinating to me that psychedelic substances are outlawed as like type one substance abuse in the United States across most of the board. And I'm, I'm looking at this experience with ayahuasca and being like, why is this illegal? Why is this like a federal offense to have this connection with something that feels just like connecting straight to God? And it, it all feels like maybe, maybe the church is expressing the true message, but maybe it got warped by human power dynamics and egos. And I just think that I'm not like going to go try to prove that or spend so much time thinking about it, but that concept just resonates with me deeply that I think there maybe are like lots of different pathways to, to connect to the divine. I think the divine is in us. Maybe we are God and God is us. And uh, that has just like opened a whole new door of potential exploration for me where I think the answer is inside, not outside. And that is my wrap on running for 12 years. <laughs> Beautiful, man. I love it. Thanks so much for sharing your entire experience. I, I think everyone listening can gain a lot just from 
going through that to let your guard down, be more open. It all comes down to love. I think it's wild how um, ayahuasca was able to get you to an ego dissolving point of embracing just like life experience as an experience because everything just is instead of like good or bad and getting wrapped up inside the nuances of that. So thanks so much for sharing. That was cool. Thanks for letting me process some of that. I hope that it helps somebody with their own thoughts about something. Thanks for listening to this episode. Feel free to connect with the brand by visiting the website confidentlyanxious.co and following social media accounts that I will put in the show notes. Thanks.